0: Everybody, Patrick Connor here, and welcome to the Knuckles and Gloves Podcast. Boxing history time. If you see Eris on your screen and me on your screen, that usually that's usually what that means. Eris, my pal, of course, CompuBox operator and fellow fight history guy like myself. What's up, man? How you doing?
1: Everything's good, man. You know, it's been a good weekend of boxing. It's been a great. Month so far fights, Um, great year so far fights. Can't complain so much. I mean, only thing I complain about is bullshit heat.
0: Yeah, dude, it's like you know triple digits where I am and whatnot. But that just fits the super hot boxing discussion we have today. Okay, that was a bad transition, but I had to try to make something of it, right? But yeah, the weather's bullshit. But man. 2023, anybody talking about boxings, dying dead on a slow streak, God, where wear the good fights? Good fights don't happen anymore. You're not paying attention. I mean, if you're not, that's okay. You don't have to be, but you're absolutely oh, full of sport. shit. It's It's been a banner year, dude, so these people are full of shit. If they're saying anything otherwise, it's been really, really good.
1: And almost 30 years, I've been a hardcore fan of the sport now. This has probably been one of the best years I can possibly remember out of all those years, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's been memorable years, but just off the top of my head, this would have been incredible. And we're only just halfway through it. Think about it, man. We still got uh, up until December. And I'm not going to say that we're going to – I think the the list of big fights that we've gotten so far might have just, you know, kind of simmered out by this time, But which is totally fine. Look at what we've already gotten this year. I mean, I'm still hoping for a couple of big ones near the end, but the only big one that we have, if you even want to call it, that is the Fury fight, but I'm not even – I don't consider that anything more than a sideshow freak show exhibition that I'm sure we'll cover at one point, you know, history wise, but um, yeah.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I think that there's probably some stuff in the works. There's room for some fights to be made and whatnot, but even so 2023 has been really good. It started out great. We've had like a number of fight of the year type of fights all over the place. Mm -hmm. So it's been really good, but That being said, we're here for history, dude. We're here to talk about some old-time fighters who've just stuck around forever. (laughs) Forever. Forever.
1: Shout out to the same
0: Yeah, dude. You know, there's, uh, of course, it's a trope in boxing. Fighters stick around too long. That's just kind of how it is. Fighters almost always stick around far longer than they should. However... We're going to be talking today about a number of fighters who just like stuck around really abnormally long or in, you know, especially at a higher level or, um, you know, there are probably a number of kind of low level fighters who just fought forever, but fought only every so often or something like that. But we're talking about the high level fighters who just fought on and on and on. For instance, there are a handful of fighters who belong to the five decade club. The first one, of course right on air's shirt
1: Manos, Roberto Duran yes sir one of the all-time greats too you know I mean not in terms of in terms of longevity but and everything accomplishments is fighting Duran is a marvel and one of the few guys that are still alive today that can be that can be considered to be in the top 10 pound for pound if everyone's consensus of all-time great lists one of the very few guys for that matter and um not only that, is usually in the upper tier of the top ten, not even the lower. Everyone wants to put him usually around number five and number six, or whatever, you know. duran was just that type of special blend of animal. And um still alive today, still in good health. And when you see him work out and still like go through the motions working with people, you still see that brilliance and still so that mind is still sharp. Um, for instance, when remember that video came out where you're sparring with Sergio Mora a few years ago? Yeah. And it's like, you know, clearly they're just kind of going through the motion. But Duran is still just like very alert the way he's like moving, fainting, putting his hands up, trying to counter and stuff like that. If basically showing that if he was in his 40s, he would have mopped the floor more rather easily. (laughs) But I mean, yeah. um, What what can be said, Pat? You know, just he's one of the all time greats. Like we've discussed him before on the show and everything. And he's been talked about verbatim throughout history. All the right reasons. But Duran is just, you know, one of a kind.
0: No question. From nineteen sixty eight to two thousand one, that's that's how he how long he fought as a professional. Obviously, That's the
1: first one we're bringing up here, just because think about that nineteen sixty eight to two thousand one, and it wasn't like he took very long <laughs> breaks in between in his career and stuff like that to make it that long.
0: From the time when uh, Muhammad Ali was exiled and Joe Frazier was, you know, the kind of de facto champion, yes. all the way until Lennox Lewis's reign. The end of Lennox's Lewis's reign. I mean, that's you know, like, to
1: think about the way you put it in perspective like that—that that is absolutely insane.
0: That's so. That's how long Roberto Duran fought. Of course, at the very end of his career, he was—you know—he's not a very viable fighter. He was obviously very kind of ballooning in fight. Uh, balloon, I'm sorry, ballooning uh, in weight, in and out of shape. Not fighting very often, and of course had a couple of embarrassing ones toward the end there. And some 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 of those guys, you know, got a win over Roberto Durant. You know what I'm saying? So it's kind of like kind of shaky some there.
1: Some guys got a win over Julio Cesar Chavez and so on and so forth, as is history, you know.
0: What was it? Uh Grover Grover Wiley? Was, you know? Grover Wiley. Didn't wind up parlaying that into anything, but nonetheless, you know, no, really yeah, that's true, that's true, you know. But uh, for Duran, the guy was even up though, like even toward the end of his career, where he was clearly kind of past it and clearly just not, uh, you know, not in any way, shape, or form the old guy that everybody remembered from the 1970s that was just an absolute monster and like the, i guess the early 1980s too well jesus i guess into okay fine into the late 1980s if we're being honest I had a couple surprises there but he he obviously had faded by that by that time but still could just kind of uh that by that time kind of his specialty was sitting on the ropes Making guys miss, not really doing much on offense because he was too out of shape and too winded. But you could tell that he was still, he was still that guy. Kind of a shadow yeah. of that guy. <laughs> I
1: and mean, he was fascinating to watch. By the time I got into the sport and started really watching it, Duran was already past the point of like the, um, you know, the uh, third Sugar Ray and Leonard fight, and even past the debacle of what was uh, his comeback in nineteen ninety one. So when I started watching Duran. First time I really actually found out about them, and this might be the same for you, Pat, is um, through that game, Boxing Legends of the Ring. (laughs) Because I actually bought, I had that game for Sega, I want to say, maybe even Super Nintendo, I I have no idea, definitely Sega. I had it for Sega, and I bought that, I had that game before I ever bought a Ring magazine. So... From that game, I knew who Tommy Hearns was. Well, besides my dad telling me about these guys, Tommy Hearns, Leonard, Duran, Robinson, Graziano, Lamata, because it was all middleweights, and James Tony, because of course Tony was the young, um, super. Uh, what was he? Probably at the near the top of the pound for pound list at that point too. So you had to put someone current in there, Tony, for the bill. Anyways, um, that's where I first learned about Duran, and my dad telling me stories. He was like, "Man, that Duran was a nasty guy. I heard him say in the ring one time he was going to kill somebody if he didn't, you know." if he trained a little bit harder. And I was like, whoa, really? Because that sounds like some shit you hear in wrestling. You know what I mean? And...
0: It was like, yeah, so. it was actually kind of worse than that, actually.
1: <laughs> Very much so, because they didn't actually say they want to kill somebody. Listen, WWF in the early 90s, they weren't talking like that.
0: So, um,
1: you know, that, piqued, me, that piqued, my, uh, piqued my interest, obviously. And then fast forward to when I become a hardcore fan and start really, you know, learning about terrain I'm just like, holy shit, this guy was absolutely brilliant, you know? And... The world took notice of that also, too. You said he started his career in the late 60s when Ali was still in exile. And by the time he finally made his first appearance in the Madison Square Garden um, against a guy by the name of Benny Huertas, um, Duran was, you know, still a relatively unknown. Huertas at that point, he wasn't a guy that had a spectacular record or anything like that. You know, a more journeyman fighter that gave everybody a good fight, though. I mean, he was a solid boxer puncher that knew his way around the ring. And he actually fought a few times in New Bedford surprisingly enough, out in Sergeant Field. Um, my dad probably saw him over there because my dad said he used to watch the fights over there. Anyways, Puertas um, was one of those guys that knew his way around the ring. It wasn't a person that normally got blown out. And it was on the undercard, I believe, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Pat, on the undercard of um, uh, Buchanan Laguna, Ismael Laguna. I don't know if it was the first or second fight. But that was Duran's first appearance, and he splattered Puertas like, you know, like he was a shooting victim. You know what I mean? He just came over there and ran right over. Werdet is laid out there, splayed out, completely flattened, and everyone in MSG was just kind of aghast and going like, "What the fuck did we just witness here?" Like hey. that was like a tornado that just hit. And soon enough, you find out he was probably going to be the greatest lightweight in the world had ever seen.
0: Yeah, it's pretty. Uh, <clears throat> it's pretty amazing too because there's there is video of it, and I I'm not sure if it was immediately after this fight or immediately before it that he started working with ray arcel i think but, it was after this fight I th- yeah i think you might be right i think it was like then before the buchanan fight but regardless um you know he was an he was a somewhat known quantity at least because he had gone and he would worked out of gleason's mm-hmm. you know he'd he'd been around new york a little bit and he'd been in the u.s so number of trainers and a number of people like, look, this is, this is how shit used to work. You know, it doesn't work quite that way now. It probably does at least to some degree, but it used to work this way far more often where if there was a fighter that nobody really knew about, or, you know, nobody had heard of because he started fighting in some country or some other place or whatever, they'd bring him into a big city and say, Hey, I got this kid, you know, you got to see this kid. This is exactly how it happened. I mean, it happened with Marciano. This is how it happened with I mean, just uh, two easy examples because I, you know, researched this shit, but Bonavanna, too. Uh, Oscar Bonavanna, they brought him, brought them both to uh, around New York, had them train in either Gleason's or some other gym in New York. And we're just like, hey, you know, come look at this. You know, hey, you manager, you promoter, you trainer, come look at the, you know, we got this young kid. And so that's exactly what they or did. Big old Wilders,
1: I guess would be another because he ended up with Gil Clancy.
0: Yep. Yeah. And, and there were a number of these guys like Ray Arcel was among them, you know, uh, you know, the old, the whole story with Charlie Goldman was that Charlie Goldman took on Marciano because everybody else was like, nah, yeah. look at this guy, dude. He's just like, uh, you know, <laughs> just look at this fucking guy. Nobody wants, no, we're not training him. And Charlie Goldman was like, Ooh, you know, look at him. He's punching hard. And so he, anyway, same scenario here except for Duran looked really good in the gym and people were like holy shit hot damn this guy can move and that's exactly how he got kind of pushed into the limelight fairly quickly in the early 1970s really
1: yeah absolutely so like Ray Arcel we've discussed him plenty of times on the show old time trainer that went back to the early 1920s and an absolute legend of the game he trained everybody from like you know Barney Ross to Ezra Charles to uh, the comeback of Benny Leonard to he had so many champions up until, you know, when he finally, he had to retire because he was kind of forced out by the mob and different things. And when he tried running his own shows in Boston and the television one day, people that didn't like that he was doing that walked up with a, um, a lead pipe, conked him on the head, and sent him into retirement for a couple of decades. So he gets a job at, um, I think it was a metal company, like doing selling or something like that. And he was doing well, you know, pretty successful doing that and traveling. But, you know, he always kept his ear to the game. He was still actively watching and keeping an eye on boxing. But
0: getting Every back so often home, telling Barry Tompkins that he didn't know nothing about Tommy Gibbons. Yes.
1: <laughs> still one of my all-time favorite clips. Well, you must not know who Tom Gibbons is. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's Man, what do you know about Tommy
1: Gibbons? Yeah. He was like, he was one of the best guys we had back then, a killer jab. And that was a really good fight. Like, the fuck are you serious? <laughs> and then fuck Tompkins you know, and then Tompkins at the end of it has to go, yeah, well, unranked Tom Gibbons against Jack Dempsey. Dude.
0: Like, yeah, jabbing, jabbing.
1: Yeah. So anyways, back to um, back to the Arcel thing. Finally, where we get to like the mid-70s, and he gets like a little bit of an itch. Enough at least that he'll be, if someone offers him a bone, he'll be inquiring about it a little bit, right? And that's what happened to Panama, good.
0: So I always, about that's about. always like one more champ. That's always what they all the great trainers yeah, say. Yeah, one yeah, more yeah, champ, yeah. one more champ.
1: Exactly. So I want to say it was Carlos Aleta, right? That brought him over? Yeah. Yeah, Carlos Aleta um, brought him over because his fighter, Alfonso Peppermint Frazier, was going to fight against the legendary Nicolino Loche for the uh, WBA Junior Welterweight Championship. He felt that even though Frazier might be an underdog, the fact that Loche was coming to Panama to fight for uh, the to defend his title, he thought that Frazier might have a good chance and Arcel going over there, you know, might give him a slight little edge. So Arcel said, you know, like you said, he felt, you know, he felt a little bit of an itch. He was like, all right, I'll take it up, especially because it's just a one and done for him, he was thinking. So he goes to Panama. He snuck into um, Loche's camp, snipped around over there. He said he looked like a fool, that he dressed up, you know, in a whole, uh, like a Panama hat, glass sunglasses, flowery shirt, like the whole ordeal. <laughs> and someone actually called him out on it he was like i know you you're from stillman's in new york and he was mm-hmm. like yeah and he was like what you doing out here He was like i'm on vacation he was like a vacation in panama <laughs> and he was like so you working for Fraser?" and he was like and he goes nah and he was like how do you and he was like why do you ask he, uh, he was like no one's asked me so anyways he ends up you know he studies him enough real you know figures it out comes up with a game plan and Fraser scores a big offset after this, Arcel decides, okay, you know, I'm feeling good. I'll just work with him, maybe if anything, but I'm not trying to get involved too much. But that's when later brought in Duran.
0: Different animal entirely. Obviously. Absolutely. You know, but uh the lightweight version of Duran was uh a slightly different fighter than the you know heavier version, obviously, moved different, uh, far more active in there offensively just an absolute machine and somebody, I mean, he just wrecked a number of different very good fighters in the lightweight division. Uh, you know, not exactly, uh, not, not a surprise given his reputation, but as he carried that weight up still stayed pretty good.
1: Yeah. Oh, incredibly. I mean, well, will think about his title win. You know what I mean? Like Ken Buchanan was one of the best, um, most skilled lightweights you'd find in a long time, like an incredibly skilled fighter. You know, beautiful boxer, had an incredible jab, just very, very tough, just a very, very good, all-around good fighter. And just one of those guys that, you know, could would be a long-time champion if it wasn't if you ran into an animal like Durant. And that fight, you know, as much as people like to talk about how vicious it was and vicious for Buchanan, for that matter, because of the ending of it, Um, Buchanan put up a beautiful fight man it was a pretty brutal fight back and forth but Buchanan was just getting overwhelmed by the ferocity of Durant like it was just constant 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 and then finally you know around round 13 or so when Durant finally just lets one go right there to the balls, hits him and you see Buchanan's face in absolute agony and referee Johnny Lobianco is just looking around
0: there he hasn't really you know
1: he didn't see anything. He yeah, was he was dying.
0: in a he was in a bad position for it.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Deer in the headlights. You know what I mean? Just didn't notice that. And you see Buchanan drop, and you see Duran just hover over him, and Buchanan just grab himself, his mouth agape, and tears probably streaming down his face. Like that was the definitive of like Duran as a lightweight. That's how he left most guys. He didn't hit them all down below to do that, but I mean, like that's the position most of his challengers and non-title challengers for that matter, because he was so active, ended up just laying there in absolute agony while Duran coldly stared at him.
0: Fuck, man. <laughs> Yeah, dude. Brutal shit. And it, <laughs> yeah, poor Buchanan said for like, you know, decades that every time he'd he he, uh, see a photo of Roberto Duran, his nuts hurt. <laughs> the guy, he got nailed. But, you know, Brit, it was the bad. Brit fans and the Scottish fans are still pretty salty about it. I mean, you know, I get it.
1: Had to hold grudges, bro. I get it, but I mean that was. I get was, it,
0: but he was beating him up pretty good at that point. Now, R- Roberto Duran, abs- absolute genius in there, man.
1: It, it really was. So you go through his lightweight reign, and then you said he moves up to welterweight, and that's his first phase of his career. He beats Leonard and maybe one of the best wins in boxing history, let alone just of the 80s. And then he has the no Mas. He has to regroup from that. That takes a little bit of time too, because he has some hiccups along the way. You know what I mean? That was
0: actually sadly the first time I'd ever heard of Roberto Duran. Not, 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 I wasn't, you know, born yet, but I mean that like my dad and my brother were both massive, just general sports fans. And so every so often my dad would say like, no mas, you know, or some shit like that. And I didn't know what it meant. And one time I asked him what it meant, like why he would say that. And he told me. And so that's the first time I'd ever heard, sadly, sadly. I hope, you know, thankfully I fucking got beyond that. (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm. with knowing what Roberto Duran's about. But yeah, that was that was a massive hit to his reputation, unfortunately.
1: It really was because it was just so sudden. It was so um anti what Duran was all about. You know what I mean? Uh, one of the most macho badass fighters in history at the up to that point it seemed. And one of those guys that you would think he would squat on a shield to rather die in the ring as opposed to quit. And initially I ran Ray out. Ray Arcel out of boxing like he was so disgusted by the ordeal that he quit it originally Um, because he said in all the years that he was involved in boxing he had never witnessed one of his fighters do something like that and you know, he came back afterwards actually in Duran's corner and a lot of people don't recognize this but if you look closely uh, when Duran fought Wilfred Benitez Ray Arcel is in his corner I don't know how active he was in there but you see him a couple of times there with a Duran on, that he was you know assisting him and he just does not look like he's happy to be there at all. I'm pretty sure that was his last corner he ever worked. But, anyways, um, yeah, it took a lot of rebuilding because Duran, like I said, he, he he loses the Wilfred Benitez, who was a brilliant fighter in himself, and no shame there. But you can tell this the fire was gone. And then when he loses the Kirkland Lane, that's when everybody writes him off, and you're like, okay, you know, that's that's it. Yeah. All time great lightweight you know could have been a great welterweight but he puttered it out and then he just you know started out the rest of his career but then comes that second phase again because Duran came in phases you know what I mean and now that second phase comes up and he first makes that initial comeback and then when he beats Davey Moore on his birthday for the junior middleweight crown at MSG in one of the most brutal fights you'll ever see like right there at that point man like Duran now is, you know, you see the greatness even more so, not just him being an all-time great lightweight, but you're just like, wow, this might be like a great, great fighter, because who can come back from shit like that? The way people put him down, the way the boxing community turned his back on him everybody, and then of all people, Bob Arum actually picked up the pieces, and that's why, because Teddy Brenner, you know, the all-time great matchmaker, told Arum, hey, you know something, old fighters can be reclamated, they just need someone to believe in them, and that's what Brenner did, like, you know, Aram said, okay, pick him up. Brenner started matching him up. He beats Pepino Cuevas, starts getting more confidence. And then by the time he destroys more, he fights Hagler, brings him to the limit, you know, on and on, on and on. And then after he gets splattered by Hearns, you think, okay, that's it again, right? Like, how's he going to come back from something like this? And then it's the late 80s and he beats Iran Barkley. Like, what kind of guy is this? You know what I mean? So it's like, it's incredible to think. And then I'll pass it back to you right after this, but like there's still another phase of his career after this because after he beats Barkley and won the all-time great performances in an all-time great middleweight fight for that matter. Um he loses a whole hum decision to Sugar Ray Leonard in their third and final fight. And then to start off the the nineteen nineties, he loses to all people, Irish Pat Lawler. You know, in another fight where he quits, this time saying his shoulder was messed up or yada yada yada. So you would think at that point now, he's been fighting now, like you said, in the late 60s, all the way now we're in 1991. He probably should have been retired at some point after maybe after the Barkley win or after the Sherry-Lennon fight. And now it's 1991. He's quitting in a fight against a guy like Pat Lawler. He should be done, but he's still not.
0: Somehow they found enough barely ranked middleweights and like kind of small super middleweights and shit like that for Duran to feast on for him to to fluff up his record and kind of uh you know get himself into position for a bigger fight or something like that in uh the mid 90s so i mean it, it it it's always possible with if anybody's got a name you know if a fighter's got a name they'll do it If it's Tuesday Night Fights, if it's some other, you know, some other, I mean, there weren't really that many other programs around that time in the 90s that would have, I mean, there were a couple, but not a, not a ton that would have done, that would have done that, especially after losing to Pat Lawler, losing to Ray Leonard. And it's not like those were like wars or anything like that, where he was, you know, putting, putting in the work. Basically, it's, you know, somebody banking off his name is an old Roberto Zan, that's it.
1: Like, Duran was supposed to win that Pat Lalo fight. That was on the undercard of some pay-per-view. I think the Tyson one or something. But It wasn't like he was supposed to lose that fight. That was supposed to be his comeback win. The only reason why Pat Lalo got that fight was because he beat the remnants of whatever whatever, whatever left of the corpse of Wilfred Benitez, you know? And so, like you said, you know, if you, like, win one of those fights against a name, they'll give you another name or you bounce around. So that's yep. how Pat Lalo got the Duran fight. He just got lucky enough that Duran threw out his shoulder, or whatever happened. But to bank off what you said, like a, um, a show like Tuesday Night Fights was one of those breathing grounds back then, you know what I mean? Where it was the safe haven for like the comeback and fighter. George Foreman had a number of fights on USA Tuesday Night Fights. Larry Holmes used to have a fight seemingly every other month when he would knock out some poor schleb and then announce his retirement. And Duran made that a home for himself too, you know? Like he was beating guys up like Heath Todd and other guys from, you know, the middling Midwest that we joke about and, like, you know, DM each other about sometimes. And, um yeah, he was keeping himself healthy. And in between when he was beating up these guys, you know, once in a while he'd be able to step up to a high, higher-profile fight on pay-per-view with the likes of Vinny Pazienza or Hector Camacho.
0: Yep. <clears throat> Mr. 5X himself, Vinny Pazienza duran Pazienza did the fight so nice, they did it twice.
1: Same with Camacho. Yes.
0: Why? I don't know, because it was not, you know... Duran many...
1: arguably won the first fight of both of those fights. But I think the most interesting and memorable stat of Duran and his very, like, Don Quixote, like, mid-90s, you know, run-through various divisions, is that he had a pair, I think it was a pair of fights with Jorge Castro was another long time um, long career fighter, and not that long from uh freshly moved uh, removed from being middleweight champion ibF middleweight champion it was and durrien split a pair of fights with him, which is pretty impressive, considering his age and the rare and tear he had on himself at that point.
0: yeah and, <clears throat> and Castro actually was another fighter, yeah like you said, who fought for quite a while and then had kind of like a uh, almost like a second career and whatnot, and probably would have still been fighting, perhaps not now, but would have kept fighting longer had he not gotten a really bad injury um, that took him out. Yeah, but in any case, uh, yeah, I mean, to, to even still be competitive, it's not like, with all due respect to Mr. Pazienza, and of course, you know, middleweight Hector Camacho, with all due respect to these fellows, it's not like we're talking about, you know, super high level. But even so as many years as this was almost 30 years into a pro, a pro career for Roberto Duran, man, that's pretty fucking wild that he was even able to stay competitive and able to defeat the likes of a guy like Jorge Castro, who himself. 97
1: was... at that point, 97.
0: I yeah. do. I do actually remember the uh, Camacho fight. Like I remember we wound up getting that fight at, like I want to say my stepsister's house or something like that, but I remember watching that shit, but. Beyond that, you know, that was obviously not a good, that's not a good version of Manos de Piedra, the fucking, you know, nah, washington nah,
1: Absolutely. And then his last fight was against Camacho, right, in that rematch. And I remember I didn't watch it because I really didn't have interest, but I know I might have switched. It was switching around. I think there was, like, a preview of, of Duran getting warmed up in the dressing room. <laughs> and he... He was just wearing a pair of speedos with his gut just hanging out over them while he was shadow boxing. <laughs> he just, you know, like when you're like those had those old Java wrestlers that just like the old timers from like the 80s that still kind of hung around that just had like the beer guts hanging over themselves and just got kind of... that's what Duran. I am like dog. No, the last thing I need to see is Duran in a pair of speedos just like shadow boxing around in his dress room, shuffling around, like you know,
0: yeah, dude, it is. Was,
1: it was he was still fighting, like my god
0: toward that uh, that portion of his career he was basically just you know uh having difficulty keeping his weight down and you know wound up fighting all the way up at light heavyweight yeah. come on now
1: and he even got in one more title fight too because we all talked about how Don King can always try to squeeze the blood out of a stone as much as he can and um he did that with Duran when he put him in again with uh William Joppy and an absolute gimme title defense Our, um Around 97, I think it was. Probably after the Castro fights.
0: It's, it's not exactly his fault, but William Joppy definitely presided over a, a kind of crappy version of the middleweight. You know, especially the the WBA contender wing was not good in the, in the mid and late 90s. Dude, and William Joppy just presided over that shit. And unfortunately, he wound up, he was one of the guys I was talking about notching a win over Roberto Duran, you know, where it's like, don't don't try to talk about that. Don't don't try to shout that out like that's like you know among your highlights, bro. Go on. That's that bad.
1: was like Showtime's version of like airing like an Ali Holmes type fight. Like it wasn't as brutal because it ended abruptly around three. Duran obviously didn't take that much punishment. But it was sad to see because you could clearly see in that fight, even though Duran was old as dirt at that point, that the like the mind was still there. You know what I mean? But his reflexes weren't. And you can like You would see him move and do certain things that you're like, okay, like, he clearly, if he was only just, like, 10, 15 years younger, he definitely would have taken advantage and whooped on Joppy for whatever he was doing. But, like, he just couldn't do it. You know what I mean? But, like, he was almost still dismissive of what Joppy was doing. He just couldn't do anything with his body. He just couldn't keep up with it. You know what I mean? But you could still see in his face that, like, he really thought Joppy wasn't shit, which he wasn't compared to actual real. grand. No disrespect to Joppy, who was a good fighter in The late 90s, you know, in the mid to late 90s, and like you said, a doldrum um, era, but one that he was near the top of for a number of years. So,
0: yeah, he, <clears throat> excuse me, existed in the exact same middleweight division as Bernard Hopkins for however many years, and just never really seemed to have any interest in unifying with Bernard Hopkins then. Although, to be fair, there probably wasn't a lot of money in that either. So, I mean, you know, just what it is it wasn't really a whole lot of money in unifying that title until Felix Trinidad entered the equation. Exactly. But, but regardless, point being that Roberto Duran was still you know within the realm of you know this this era actually for that to have happened when it did only a couple years later was Hopkins was Hopkins Trinidad. I mean, yeah, that's pretty wild, dude. So that's how long. uh That's how long Duran's. Stuck around though, which is just fucking amazing.
1: And to be honest, his career probably would have lasted a little bit longer if he didn't get into a serious car accident. That kind of just forced him to retire, but
0: it's like a back injury or something like that, or I don't, I don't remember know. it was,
1: still, I know it was something pretty serious that he was forced to retire and he couldn't do anything about it, considering his age, but
0: well his weight like got way up for a while. It, it, and...
1: it. But he looks he looks great now.
0: Yeah, he looks great now.
1: And all right, last question about him before I guess we move on. Do you consider him the uh greatest living fighter today?
0: Probably. Yeah. yeah. Probably. Especially if, you know, I would say that he probably does rank in the top 10 fighters of all time. You know, if 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 not, then he's just outside of it. I whatever, I'm not really I would that. I put much. him in the top 10. In fact, I
1: would put him in the higher like around 7 or so.
0: Yeah. I, mean, I, I'm, I'm I don't, not am not big on
1: Kind of thinking to myself right now, but like I would definitely put him at least three le- rungs above like number ten. He's a, he's in my top ten, sure.
0: Yeah, I would. I wouldn't argue that at all. And so yeah, if you agree with that, then yeah, he's almost yeah, certainly the greatest living like, fighter.
1: Greatest living fighters today. It's for me, Duran, Leonard, then probably Larry Holmes.
0: Right, and then right outside that, probably Broner.
1: Yeah, I, I mean you can't. A B, baby. You know.
0: I mean, he's going for division four. He already is a four division champ, man. What you thinking? Oh no, I can't that's right. I can't I can't even keep track of him. Oh, bro, don't
1: disrespect the champ. Don't disrespect A B like that four times, baby.
0: Yeah, we're counting IBO and
1: <laughs> Listen, once he gets to that five time champ, first ballot hall of famer. We already know.
0: Anna Stoda. I'll vote him in. <laughs> nah, probably won't. It'd have to be a down year. (laughs) It'd have to be a pretty down year.
1: Even on that note, there's a bunch of guys on the ballot that i probably would... I'm not even probably. I would absolutely vote ahead of Broner. But
0: I love you. Probably. (laughs) So... Going, we'll we'll do another uh, fairly well-known fighter here. That's pretty easy to talk about. Doesn't require a whole lot of uh, reaching as far as going into the hardcore bin or going to the fucking woodshed for the crazy facts and whatnot. But like I said, well-known fighter Jack Johnson, the first black heavyweight champion, also a fighter who fought for a very long time. Uh, you know, kept uh, longevity for. Uh, especially for the time, especially for the style of fighting that he was often up against and the kind of transitional periods he went through during his pro career. Um, But his own style, his style is what really helped keep him in the game for as long as he was, even though toward the end, sounds like there was some kind of dispute as to whether or not the fights he fought were either fixed or exhibitions. Who knows? Still fought for a very long time. I mean, starting in the 1890s, right, like right around the turn of the century, very interesting time for boxing. We've talked about it a number of different times, but I mean, you know, there's a lot going on, not just socially, but in in boxing and how boxing is developing, the public perception of boxing, whether or not it's allowed in certain states, cops coming after you, you got to go out to fucking sail out to a boat in the harbor to go fight, etc. There's more than one example of these kinds of things. So yeah, it's a very interesting period for boxing and Jack Johnson started in 1897.
1: And then ended his career around 1931. I mean, again, there's like gaps in between stuff like that, but that's just like, that's, that's, that's a pretty incredible stat right there. You know what I mean? That's one of those things that the longevity, when you look at it is astounding. And Again, it's a tribute to his style, like you said, because he was one of the first guys that, even though he started in the late 1800s, the, we talked about this earlier today, um, the transition and the changes, the evolution of boxing happened so kind of rapidly at that point, you know what I mean? Like, there was a lot of changes happening, and guys where, from the days of the the last of the bare-knuckle fighters, like, you know, the John L. Sullivan, the whole of that time period, who was still being active at the turn of the century and others you started seeing you know the the tweaks in technique and the way fighters were ever you know using things now with defense and doing this and doing that and movement and you know ring generalship and things happening and you were seeing guys now at the turn of the century that were just like unlike anything you had ever seen you know peter jackson for instance um from australia one of the first black first great black fighters was one of the guys that was like known for having a different technique and looking especially during the Sullivan era, as a guy that, you know, stood out from the rest and for someone if Sullivan never drew the color line, good chance Sullivan would have got thumped by him, but it never happened. Then gentleman Jim Corbett came around and he's usually known as like one of the fathers, I guess, of like modern boxing and how like, you know, things that are making a turn for where they happen today. We talked about this earlier, but like George Dixon, who at that point in time when Sullivan was still active and after Sullivan retired, was probably known as the greatest fighter in history at that point. That should have been the first like modern guy showing what was going on. That guy was George Dixon who was doing things that no one had seen in boxing after that point. Like he was he was the Floyd Mayweather at his time. You want to put it in perspective yeah
0: what jim corbett we've talked about this before and we're both kind of annoyed and aggravated by him he's kind of just got that face you know mm-hmm. he's got that that hairstyle and that fucking face to be honest and also i mean it's really just
1: really just douchey and then like you can tell you office and arrogant even though he had that nickname and then when you read books and find out how much of an actual blatant racist he was it just makes you hate him even more
0: He's more the Godfather of fighting with his fucking ass cheeks hanging out. What the fuck, Corbett? <laughs> what the fuck you, I mean, dude, I don't really care. Like, wear what you want. I'm not trying to shame you. I'm That's just trying same, to say, man. I know
1: those things were. So they were burnt. shorts. We know
0: there were fucking shorts that existed back then. You don't need to fight with your fucking ass hanging out, bro. But he did.
1: Like, you mean to tell me in the Corbett fight that his cheeks definitely get burned? Absolutely, they must have.
0: Like, well wow. F- fitz simmons put him right on his fucking cheeks that's for sure <laughs> that he did that he did um
1: but you think about like the evolution of what they went through and then johnson was like a whole different being too you know from especially from the different heavyweight champions even up that point from corbett he was like a uh, uh, just a different being and he his just his way his it was his control of the ring you know, you can almost argue that you haven't seen a more relaxed heavyweight from Johnson up until like second generation George Foreman. And I know that's a long ass gap to say, but i leave. You know, I guess I'll um, Goes in that category too because think of how relaxed he was in his second career and the way he just leaned back and took care of things and all that. But like, it's the relaxation that Johnson had in that in that ring and the way he used to fight was just like none other. Just the way he came in, you you know, his smile, his confidence of everything, how he just knew what he was going to do. It wasn't the most exciting style, but it was just a, such a dominated way that no one could do anything with him because he just had such command. He just knew what you were about to do. Ten, you know, he was three paces ahead of you all the time. He knew how to use a jab. He knew how to clinch when necessary. He could body you around because he was physically strong. Kind of, and more so, like, surprisingly, like, in a way that Terrence Crawford is. You know, Crawford can body guys on the inside and bully them around, and kind of, people are surprised they can do that. Johnson was able to do that with anyone else, too. You know, the way he would clinch you up and just push you back and then go pop pop pop, and then take you in. What can you do with a guy like that, you know? Most of the generation of the heavyweights that came in were very crude. They didn't know how to handle a guy like Johnson's stature and Johnson's skill set. And that went for a lot of dudes. I mean, there were some heavyweights that weren't white. That could handle a guy like Johnson and go, you know, tit for tat with him, dudes like Joe Jeanette and Sam Langford and um uh Sam McVeigh and the list goes on and on of you know guys that Johnson used to fight and then decided to avoid once you know he can get more lucrative paydays against the easier white fighters. And those dudes just couldn't do anything with him. Like look what uh, look with him against like General, you know, on um, fireman Jim Flint, how he just kind of bodied him around, did we want, bop, 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 on other stuff. What he did with Tommy Burns. Most famous most famously with um Jim Jeffries in the fight that caused riots all over the country because of him just toying with them like a cat with a mouse. You know, Johnson was at that point something that the world had never seen. And yep. he, he was incredible.
0: Yeah, no question. Um, he had the kind of style where, yeah, probably wouldn't translate very well today, but he was obviously an intelligent guy and an intelligent fighter who i I don't really have much doubt that he would have figured something out in today's age and whatnot Sure. but i but, I mean, you know, at that time, though, yeah, nobody had seen a fighter where he was called the Galveston giant, he wasn't really that giant, he was only about six foot six foot one, which is not that big. But in that time, you know, that was a solid, a solid built fighter, of course. But Mm. he was big enough to handle himself and big enough to, like you said, handle himself in the clinch. A lot of what was happening, though, in the ring with the evolution of what was going on in boxing and the public perception too. you know, back in the day, like before this, even back in the 1800s. A lot of what was written about boxing and the public perception about boxing, because you could see it in newspapers, people would write into newspapers just like they do now. People would write in newspapers, oh, this shit's so barbaric. I fucking hate it. You know, what are you, what are you guys covering boxing for? This is some bullshit. You know, fighters are dying. Fighters, are, you know, look at their faces when they're done it's the exact same type of shit people say now it's not there's the criticism was the same but a lot of the difference was obviously because of bare knuckle some of the facial injuries the hand injuries were far more severe or severe looking Um, and so as shit got pretty nasty and fights could get bloody and cuts could get gnarly really really quick And so, on top of that, the crowds liked slugging. They wanted slugging, and that was the expectation. A fighter could get penalized in a fight if they were considered like avoiding the fight, and that was a big change around the time where you bring up George Dixon. And I mean, yeah, Corbett to a lesser extent, but Fitzsimmons too. Fighters who were counter punchers or fighters who were not just you know uh, 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 you know weighed in and bring up
1: Fitzsimmons. Yeah, that's another guy we both love
0: for sure. Yeah. And not, you know, and that's fine. You know, there's nothing wrong with slugging, but that was what um, John L. Sullivan was known for. He was known to be a good slugger, like a skilled slugger, not just somebody who came in and didn't look, but he knew how to get himself into position and to, you know, et cetera. But a lot of that changed around this time. And so uh, Jack Johnson wound up being a fighter where avoiding punishment and avoiding, Like kind of just shutting uh, an opponent down, shutting them down offensively so they couldn't do shit. That's not pretty. It sucks. It's not entertaining, but it's effective. And a lot of fighters had no clue what to do against that style. They couldn't do anything. They couldn't do anything inside. He was too fast and too clevered uh, for them on the outside. And so that was what really bewildered a lot of people was that it was a different style.
1: Honestly, it's still a style that's still effective today. You know what I mean? There's still variations. Of if you watch some Lennox Lewis fights, you can't tell me that Lennox Lewis doesn't have something like how the way he shut down Holyfield or other guys that would come too close and just boop, boop, take him out right there, take him out, pop, pop. Like, you know, it's not it's not pretty. Sometimes it's not exciting, but it works. You know, other like John Ruiz, yep. I hate to say it, but a guy that would just clinch all the Dude time. Do the kind just... of
0: like chest to chest moving around, reps over yeah. here, bap, 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 you know, like. Yep. Ref moves over to the other side, bap, bap, you know, that type of shit. Like,
1: Hawkins would do it, like, you know, but Johnson was just one of the early pioneers of perfecting it. And he was damn good at doing it because no one was able to cycle that during his reign.
0: And talking the entire time. Amazing. And, and which was just <laughs> infuriating to every white person within a earshot. They couldn't <laughs> stand it, got so mad.
1: Especially Gentleman Jim
0: and And right. fireman and fireman Jim Flynn, who also could be in this discussion, but two times, two separate times, like I mean I have the newspaper reports if anybody's that interested in it, two separate times, Jack Johnson fought fireman Jim Flynn, and in two separate fights, he's basically just putting a kind of steady whooping on him, talking to him. Etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and so Fireman Jim Flynn gets so mad two separate times that he starts calling him racial epithets right there in the middle of the ring, yelling at him, talking to the ref. And both times Jack Johnson was like, Oh, really? and just knocked him out immediately. Both times, two times. How amazing is that?
1: Oh, yeah. You know, and then the clip in the rematch, because if you read the newspaper accounts, they say that Flynn turned into a Billy Go and just tried to headbutt Johnson over and over. And if you watch the film, I think of the second fight. You see Flynn literally do that, just charge at him, and Johnson is like a madman, just pop, up, 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 just hitting with a thousand jabs before basically clinching him up, and Flynn, like you said, probably hurling a bunch of disgusting words at him. And then, um, yeah, that that was the time. That was the norm of the of the era, though. Like you had that during the Jeffries fight. Everybody hated Johnson, and Jim Corbett is there ringside. Just spewing at the mouth, getting you know. First, he's like cheering on Jeff at ringside. Looks like he wants to mix it up a little bit, Jeff. And then you know, Jack Johnson would be like, like this, pop, pop, hits him with a combination, clinches him up, and then smiles at Corbett. Corbett, obviously, you know, probably wearing layers of wool and everything because of the time period and what was in style, sweating, seething, sitting there clutching his cane, just you know. And then <laughs> exactly, <right>? just. <laughs> Manicking, yeah, and then, like, you know, (laughs) looks like he wants to mix it up a little bit. Jeff, oh, like this, clutches him again, you know, starts patting himself even more with the towel and stuff like that. And then, you know, by the time it looks like Jeffries is getting pummeled, his face is looking like you know, a um, a bruised plum, and he's he's just getting his ass whooped, right? And you'll hear something like Corbett say, and these are all like random quotes I'm telling you that were like from different accounts can't you do something jeff
0: <laughs> And <then>
1: you <laughs> him, or something like this i hit him with an uppercut bop you know that's with another four piece clenches him and smiles again with his golden tooth smile and at that point corbett almost has an aneurysm you know like think of it the way like um in more modern times if you're watching if you want to watch wrestling right and you like say vince man sent in one of his goons like to beat up Stone Cold or something and Austin just starts beating the shit out of the guy <laughs> he keeps, on looking at, and he keeps on looking at McMahon and mocking him while he's doing it and you know how you see McMahon ringside seething and you see the vein like throbbing in his head while he was just like you know go, going crazy that's probably how Corbett looked ringside while Johnson was whooping on Jim Jeffries so
0: yeah not in not at all hiding that he was upset so it's like
1: at all not at all trying to hide it at all he was a seething absolutely seething yeah at the
0: mouth about it well in and then you know in his training camp and in his corner he had just like the the master class of white dudes who refused to fight black fighters (laughs) john l sullivan i don't think he was in his corner but john l sullivan visited him in his training camp and was all you know putting his support behind him and shit james corbett joe Koyensky at least fought some black fighters so you got to give it to him for that but regardless you know joe Koyensky was was
1: Kowinski has the. I don't mean to cut you up, but Kowinski has that famous story with Johnson, right, where they fought each other. That's Kowinsky yeah. Knocked him out because you know he's much more experienced. This was a young Johnson that he fought, and they got put in jail because it was interracial fight, and that was supposed to happen. And um, there's that photo of them like you know mm-hmm. locked together, right? Which was probably which was probably posed. Uh, yeah, yeah,
0: I'm sure to some degree it was posed.
1: But what what was um. What's allegedly happened too is that Koensky was giving him advice, right? That like he talked to Johnson, gave him some
0: supposedly. supposedly. Well, and yeah, I mean, if you're following the popular accounts, not only did Koensky give him advice, but he gave him like crucial advice that changed his, you know, I mean, yeah, yeah, that's wank certain. fucking wank, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so there's always got to be the white dude who sails in and saves the fucking day at some point. <laughs> but, <laughs> Ken Burns fucking guy but regardless you know uh no i mean
1: i who narrates those shows is pretty fantastic though that voice is
0: it's well done dude it's really well done it's just that it's leaving out a lot of shit and it's kind of pushing heavy on some shit that's not i
1: mean that's 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 every ken burns documentary though too like you can say the same thing for his documentary on text there's a lot of pockets that were missing there that a lot of people brought up grapes about
0: great It's it's a great yeah it's a great story and it's a really uh captivating version to tell I'm sure you not... can
1: say the same about his Civil War one which I've never seen but if I looked it. That anyway. one
0: was really good. I yeah, I thought that that was yeah, that one was really really good. That was part of what made his yeah, fucking But okay. regardless.
1: Definitely got to look that up now.
0: But okay. <laughs> no, it was, it's good. Um but in any case, yeah, that the unforgivable blackness leaves out a lot. Um in any case, yeah, we've talked about this too. It kind of uh, looking at, at Jack Johnson as a slightly more complex character than he's often viewed, I think is a lot more fun anyway. But regardless, you know, going on into his later career, he That's- had, he had uh, when he lost the the heavyweight championship to Jess Willard, he obviously, his, his career had kind of fallen apart by then. He, even before then, his career was starting to fall apart when he had already gone into exile to Europe he was struggling to even find fights as the heavyweight champion. He was trying to figure out you know, who am I even going to fucking defend the heavyweight title against, which is pretty wild when you think about it. You can't find a heavyweight challenger, you know. What? But it was a lot of it was uh Europe was on the brink of war right at the time. That was part, at least part of it. The uh the British Boxing Board of Control at that time had just instituted their color bar Uh, When Jack Johnson became champion because they were basically, for whatever reason, not wanting any of their fighters to get entangled in any of that. And so Jack Johnson's options were fairly slim after that point, and he had been inactive. Just bleeding money, needed money really badly, and then on top of that, wasn't really training the way he should have been. Lost his heavyweight championship to Jess Willard, and after that, just kind of became you know the the fighter who was constantly trying to chase a comeback. That was really all it was. He talked about potentially fighting Dempsey at at one point, but there was no way that was going to wind up being you know the case ever. So, he wasn't really a viable fighter for the vast majority of his post-Willard career, but he still fought on.
1: He really did. Now, as I go through his box wreck, and it's interesting too, Pat, because post-Willard, like you just said, is not a like, uh, his career post-Willard is not something that gets brought up very often. It doesn't get talked about a lot. Um, unless, you, you know, you go into his his like, books and autobiographies or whatever, you know, they'll skim on some of it, but yeah, like you said, you know, Johnson was always one of those guys that was very boastful and always would be in the papers making challenges and grandstands and doing things for that matter, but was just kind of still, you know, grasping yes. straws, and it's because he was exiled from the USA. You know, like you basically said, especially as champion, he was already exiled. As you see, you know, he's defending against Frank Moran, he has to defend him in France, he has to do this, like, because of the that bullshit man act that they employed on him. You know, we're And at the end of the day, this was put on him just because he was a man of success as a black man in America, heavyweight champion of the world and was very boisterous about it. And so not only did
0: they went after everything he did,
1: everything, absolutely everything he did
0: opened up his nightclub in Chicago and they like find him every other day.
1: Yep. So he's still, you know, because of his, um, because he's kind of, and struggle to make some kind of like living consistently after his career is over. Cause he's exiled from everything. Like he's still like persona non grata. He has to keep on, he has to keep his career going. Sure. He could take little side gigs doing, you know, making appearances here and there and doing whatever, but that's not going to pay, you know, for the life that he wants to live. So he has to keep on continuing the fight. Even if it's against guys that are just, you know, non-descript opposition of person debuted here in Mexico, a debuting here in another place. A debut fighter, in you know Madrid, Spain, and end up fighting somebody like a bearcat, right? Who wouldn't be able to hold a candle to him in his prime, but you know he gets stopped uh, against a guy like that because he's already washed. You know, what I mean, he's still just hanging on, and it's kind of incredible because he's really up there in age. But you um, talked about this too. He ends up being you know active up until the point where like two years before Joe Lewis turned professional, which is wild to think in retrospect. Because he still ended up meddling in Joe Lewis's career while Joel was, you know, still young, and we've talked about that before on the show, which is, it's like sad and hysterical at the same time, because Johnson did it for two and twofold. One, he clung on to Lewis because he knew that Lewis was a popular guy and he wanted to keep his name in the spotlight. And two, he didn't like Jack Blackburn. Jack Blackburn fucking hated him, as a lot of black fighters from that era did, because they felt Johnson's antics held them back because they weren't as boisterous as Johnson was and Johnson being the way he was kind of spoiled it for the rest of them because who wants to give a chance for anybody now when Johnson's acting the way they do. And they're like, Oh my God, you know, they scare them. Yeah. And Blackburn was from that era. That was like, you know, Jack Johnson being an idiot kind of fucked me over. So.
0: In in, I mean, obviously there is a there's different, a yeah. there's a different portion of him being the first black heavyweight champion that the other portion is that he didn't you know fight any black fighters except for battling jim johnson and who was not and supposedly a lot of people don't know this because that since it happened in paris a lot of the build-up and shit like that was from french newspapers but i've done you know let me adjust my classes that aren't i've done the research fucking uh actually what what jack johnson had said at the time was that battling Jim Johnson's, according to Jack Johnson, had been going around and calling himself, quote-unquote, Champion Johnson
1: yeah.
0: and advertising himself battling Jim Johnson. And so Jack Johnson was mad about it and said, that's why I want to fight him because he's been going around pretending to be me. and When in reality well, that's it
1: was... only something Tyson Fury would do today.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, it was it's crazy, but that was the excuse he used, and even I then, people were like, sounds
1: like, "Something Fury would use that excuse to fight somebody."
0: Well, and even then, people were like, "Hmm, I, I guess okay then." So, I mean, but you know, it, it yeah, not not good. So that's the other part of that, obviously. Um, but you know, the way that the way that Jack Johnson's career carries on. Uh, first of all, you mentioned Bearcat, right? Who was the father of the first black uh, wrestling heavyweight champion ever, Bearcat Wright Jr.? Which, in and of itself, is a a stat, little piece of trivia some people might not know. But the whole Joe Lewis thing, dude. You know, uh, there's a a backstory supposedly that's far more personal from Jack Blackburn. According to Jack Blackburn, um, Jack Blackburn, who was far, you know, way smaller than than uh, Jack Johnson. Uh, he himself was a former uh, welterweight. Lightweight. 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 Welterweight. Okay. Okay, something he like was that. The
1: lightweight that ended up fighting Harry Greb after he got out of jail for a volume.
0: That sounds about right. Okay, I knew he was smaller, but I wasn't positive. In any case, he was definitely smaller than Jack Johnson. And according to Jack Blackburn, he had sparred with Jack Johnson at one point very early in Jack Johnson's career and was, like, not beating him up or anything, but, like, hanging with him and Jack Johnson was mad because he was like, there's a little guy hanging with him. And so supposedly according to him, it was right on the verge of when Jack Johnson had started getting paid and that Jack Johnson had a place that he was staying and that Jack, he would let Jack Blackburn stay and kicked him out, like kicked him out like in the middle of the night or some shit like that. And so Jack Blackburn was super fucking sore about it and pissed about it. And then he like held a grudge against him. And so that's, I don't even know if that's true, but if that is true, then that adds an even extra layer of beyond, you know, however he felt as a black man and as a, you know, black against a black champion, et cetera, et cetera. It's shit ain't for me, obviously, but nonetheless. I
1: would, definitely make I would be I'd, pissed about that too. old shit.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if that's true, but I remember Jack Blackburn telling that story in a sports illustrator article from like the fuck, you know, way back in the day. But that's incredible.
1: Yeah, I mean, but one thing you can't say about like as much as eccentric Johnson was and loudmouth and yada yada yada, he did he did have a mind for boxing. He was a genius of the sport. All right, because even though he was needling in on Joe Lewis's career, we've talked about this before on on a previous episode. But the guy, I mean, we just talked about his career. He knew what he was seeing in the ring. He was very smart. And for that matter, I'm pretty sure. the pre-titled Joe Lewis, Jack Johnson could have taken. Because he predicted, like we talked about one time, as much shit as Johnson was talking, he knew that Joe Lewis wasn't a finished product. And when Joe Lewis was going to fight Max Schmeling, he predicted Schmeling was going to beat him. And we talked about it before because Johnson noticed, you know, being very in tune, watching a lot of stuff on Lewis, Lewis always dropped his hand a little bit whenever he would throw a jab to bring it back. I mean, like, it was quick. It was still subtle, but like he still noticed enough that if you were quick enough and you were willing to eat a few of them because you have to, you know, get your sense of timing before you're able to do this, then you would be able to counter it with a good right hand, which Schmeling had. Schmeling had probably the best right hand in the heavyweight division at that point. And we all know Schmeling brutalized the shit out of Lewis in that fight because he said he saw something, which is what Jack Johnson saw. And Johnson then made one of the biggest bonehead decisions of uh, in history, not just boxing history, but almost history in general, because it almost cost him his life, is that he went to Harlem, Joe Lewis country, the middle of Harlem, after the fight ended, with all of his winnings, thinking that he's like somehow he'd be okay and waving them around before he got jumped by all the neighborhood. <laughs>
0: Yeah, got surrounded, and they basically said it was like a second from coming to bloodshed, and then somebody was like, hold on, hold on, and stopped it. But he almost lost his life that evening, according he to what He literally witnesses. went
1: around waving round tickets, saying, talking all kinds of shit about saying, I told you Joe Lewis was going to lose. The Schmeling? And this is like obviously predating World War II, like, you know, the crazy Nazi thing going on. But still, the fact that Joe Lewis was a hero, he gets knocked out. Everyone's really sad and somber that night. And here comes Jack Johnson. Gold yeah. teeth.
0: The fuck are you doing? <laughs>
1: dancing around, probably with his beret on too, because he was wearing that a lot in late, you know, in his post career.
0: Just <laughs> with a cane. Oh yeah, a yeah, yeah. I mean,
1: Johnson was a very stylish dude, man. That dude always had a nice little drip on him, right? All those post photos, like the leather gloves he was wearing, even
0: when he was poor, even when he was like owing shitloads of money, he was still trying to put up appearances. That's just the I kind mean, of guy he was, was.
1: From head to toe, he was always looking smooth. You can't deny him that, you know. And apparently anytime when he was doing like vaudeville acts or doing something where, because it's been written in various magazines, like some people would be like, yo, you didn't even do anything. Like he would show up and just kind of leave. They said that one time a guy approached him, like this person that wrote this article, he was like, I approached Johnson. And I was like, what the fuck, man? You didn't do anything, old man. What the hell? And Johnson kind of like pushed his chair back. and like, go ahead and try to swing at me. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And he took like five or six swings and Johnson was old and Johnson barely even moved just kind of like slightly tilted his head each way and did something. And the dude was sitting there exhausted <laughs> and Johnson just kind of gave him like a fist like I can finish you and just kind of shuffled away. And the guy just stood there in amazement and just walked away like home and just walked home in bewilderment.
0: <laughs> I mean, the way that the dude went out is the way that uh, unfortunately a number of other famous fighters have gone out. But uh, at least there's a, a bit of a. I don't. I don't even know how much of the tale of right before he died is true. But the the popular, kind of mythology is that he was driving with his companion. He had a driving companion. Uh, he had gone through several wives, and he had like a friend who traveled with him. Basically, the story was that by this time he was old. He probably had the the early stages of dementia. I would imagine because from what people I mean, say.
1: 46 right so yeah,
0: yeah. See- and and he he uh had according to some people he'd just kind of been losing a little bit and that the his driving companion said that he had been driving worse and worse lately and the problem was that Jack Johnson loved to like speed the dude was just a lead foot like put his fucking foot to the fucking metal, you know you know and uh, apparently according to the companion they had stopped at some sort of cafe that refused to serve Jack Johnson, despite the fact that he was of course the former heavyweight champion because he was black. And so then they took off and according to the companion, Jack Johnson was pissed about it and speeding and just negotiated a turn poorly and ran into, I think it was a telephone pole or hit a telephone pole and the impact was bad enough that uh, Jack Johnson's internal injuries killed him, but the companion survived. So
1: let me ask you this, Pat. What about this uh the story told down over the years that's saying that Johnson was on his way to the Jack to the Joe Lewis Billy Connery match when he died in a car accident?
0: I don't know if that's I'd, I'm not sure. I'd have to look at the dates and shit. Like I see a lot That'd of
1: and a lot of articles, like people saying Jackson, uh, Johnson died in a car accident, they're like, where was he en route to the Joe Lewis Billy Connery match? Oh, and that might be true. I, yeah, I mean, maybe I don't know. I just, I just go on. I just was curious if you knew like any more to that. But um, I'd,
0: I'd have to look. But I don't remember.
1: There is that famous quote that Johnson did. You know, before he passed away, I'm, I'm assuming a few years before, or so where he got pulled over for a ticket, right? And I don't. I, what was the price of it? I don't know what it was like. I'm gonna say.
0: I don't know. The, the guy, who, you know, he bucks. said something was like 25 bucks. So, yeah, like, yeah, 25 here's 50.
1: Oh, Yeah, and he said, here's 50. And he was like, why did you give this to me? He was like, because I have to come back this way.
0: <laughs> yeah, who knows if it actually happened, but it's a good story.
1: That's a great, yeah, that's a great line. Absolutely. So, Jack Johnson, man, that was a good pull.
0: Roberto Duran, Jack Johnson. Who else we got for these foos who stuck around too long or just a long ass time?
1: First off, this might have to be a Two part episode because there's a lot of guys we could break up for this stuff, but um, you know the second another guy I wanted to bring up was uh, a former Duran opponent and another um person that lasted as long as Duran did throughout the decade, Saul Mambe Good call. Sweet yeah,
0: yeah, definitely a a fighter who like especially for how long he stuck around. There's like three fucking photos of the guy. What the fuck, dude? <laughs> <laughs> there's like no photos of him. It's crazy how, I mean, there are a handful, but it's just funny because, you know, you would think that for how long he stuck around, granted, not at the highest of levels, you know, for, uh, it was he was at a fairly high level for a short period of time, and outside of that, not very high level. But even so, for how long he stuck around, you know, you just think that people would know a little more about him, have more photos, have more video, et cetera. But there's not nearly as much as you might think.
1: No, you know, when it comes to video, it's very, very like few and in between. There there was, even when he was champion because Mambi became champion in the late 70s and then he finally... um, A
0: few of his fights, I think you're, yeah, just kind of considered gems and shit. Like, highly sought after.
1: Absolutely. I'm going to get to that in one second. It's like, Mambi was just one of those guys that he didn't... His style didn't translate into being popular and he wasn't a popular fighter and he was just like known as one of those guys that since there was, you know, there was no pull behind him, why even like document what was going on? He was just, you know, kind of in the threads of things. But he was a brilliant boxer, um, who came up in New York City, and his parents, as a black fighter, came and was converted. His parents converted to, uh, to, a, to Judaism when he was young. So he said that he was bullied a lot as a kid. You know, walking through his neighborhood in the Bronx, and such as he was wearing a yarmulke and stuff like that, and other kids would want you know pull it off and beat him up and do things like that. And so he was learn he he was forced to learn how to box. He was forced to learn how to defend himself, which you know he did to great effect. And when he turned pro in 1969, that was you know his first fight uh, in September at that point. Right away, you know he was kind of thrown into the wolves relatively quickly. By 1971, he's fighting the likes of Edwin Fairway, you know, and guy you know like a lot of the fucking really really tough guys of the new york city club scene that he has to go through and before you know it 1976 he's fighting the likes and still he's still a relatively newcomer just kind of building his way through fighting these guys and he has to fight the likes of howard weston jr howard weston jr is one of those guys that um junior welterweight and welterweight contender and one of those guys that if you look at his record back then too um a person that didn't have the best record like he always you know 15 and 6, 18 and 6, 20 and 8, whatever. Like, I'm just throwing numbers out there, but this is like the type of record he had. If you look at who he fought, he was a rugged, rugged individual, slick as shit, who fought a who's who. Gave um beat one to his first loss, and beat the shit out of Rocky Matacholi, uh, fought a draw with Howard Weston, gave Wilford Benitez two extremely tough fights, was actually beating Tommy Hearns before he detached his retina. Uh, retina before Burns became champion, like one of those just rugged, really rugged individual New York fighters, you know what I mean? That was put through the grinder, like Salamambi was. And then he's fighting Roberto Duran, the you know, lightweight champion in a non-title fight and in fucking Miami Beach. And, God, man, you know, I'll, the, the off course really quick, when I was working on Haig Kaplan's archives, uh, dec- you know, a decade ago or so, one box that he had was like 40 posters of mint. Roberto Duran Sao Mande on site posters. And I wish I just could have had one of those because, like, he had like 50 of them. What do they, I don't know what they did with them, but they don't need 50 of those posters. You could have given me one. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, anyways, yeah. Yeah. Oh, Give yeah. Give
0: out as fucking stocking stuffers and shit. Damn. I
1: mean, dude, like, you know, and if you look at the old Miami Beach posters, you know which ones I'm talking about, right? Like, they had like, the kind of, like, bright backgrounds with the two mm-hmm. bodies on it. It says Chris Dundee, Angelo Dundee, but it's, like, the neon and, like, the pink kind of blending into it a little bit. You know what I'm saying, right?
0: Yeah, that sounds cool as fuck, too.
1: <laughs> and, no, no, it's like, cool, and then this just has a photo of Duran. It had a photo of Mambe on it and it was talking, you know, no TV, no this, no that, blah, 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 blah. I just remember that box specifically because like Hank Kaplan just kept just fucking everything, man. I've never seen a collection like that. and I wish I appreciated it more when I was actually working on it. When I was a punk kid, as I am as an adult today and knew what I was getting myself into, but that's neither here nor there. But I mean, think about it. He's fighting Duran in 76. That same year he's going in with Antonio Cervantes. Like Cervantes, who doesn't get brought up enough today at all whatsoever is recognized as, you know, maybe one of the great. it has to be one of the top five greatest junior welterweights in history. Like, that guy was just a bona fide legend, you know. It's just the fact that, excuse me, he made appearances in the States a few times here and there in the 70s, but the majority of his career was spent overseas, you know, whether it was in native Columbia and other parts of the world. Where he was just beating the shit out of everybody else but I mean that guy was an all-time great but these are the type of guys that Manby had to go through before he finally got a title shot in late seven in 1977 against Saint-Sac Mosoori who um, we've had a uh, one of our buddies on Twitter um Thomas Delorme T-bone asked us to, to do a tie episode one day and I'm sure he'll be a guy with every bring up but for a guy like Manby who had a whole hum record up and down, you know, just kind of struggling, trying to figure things out. This is his first shot, and this is one of the videos, actually, that you talked about being a grail, because Lee Groves and other co- collectors have always talked about over the years as being one of the holy grails of fights they wanted to see because it's been talked about. It's been filmed. There's various bits and clips on YouTube, but only like a minute long. But to, to break it down, this is the first fight that Mambe had to deal with where he started dealing with his prohibitive, you know, um, the bad luck he was not receiving over the years. But that's the word I'm looking
0: at. Sainsak Mwong Surin is one of those fighters who's pro, uh, uh former Muay Thai fighter, which is fairly typical of a lot of uh, fighters from Thailand. I mean, probably even now too, but especially uh, around the time, around the 60s and 70s and into the 80s. All, all the way to Samart Payakarun, who's one of the greatest Muay Thai fighters of all time, you know, considered by many the, the greatest Muay Thai fighter of, of all time. But that being said, Mong Surin had Surin had a really like typical, you know, style of many of those fighters where they're very aggressive, often kind of squared up, but like, you know, swung, they swung, you know what I mean, and made fights fun so uh i have sure yeah. he was a
1: beast bro he's fun to watch like the few clips that you find on youtube which is of him not getting obliterated by like say thomas hearns
0: yeah
1: yeah you can tell he was a beast you know what i mean absolutely
0: yeah a lot of those dudes were just sturdy as hell you know uh, physically just if not super ripped or you know big or bulky just just muscular and tough and the type of fighters that you didn't necessarily want to go in against because it was going to be a rough night. I've obviously never seen that fight because, you know, if I had, I'd fucking tell everybody. I'm not that kind of person hoarding it to myself. But regardless, yeah, that I do know that. Uh, from essentially the whole
1: with Lee, though, right? Remember, I think, essentially like the brief clip that they had of it.
0: Yeah, but I've never seen, yeah, I've never seen the whole thing or seen it yeah. around or anything like that. But uh, I know from interacting with Lee and from knowing kind of like the type, the type of fights that collectors like that look for, you know, I know that it's among the kind of grail type of fights.
1: It is. Absolutely. But that was the fight that kind of put him on notice, I guess, in the world. Because Moksorin, even though he had a, like a lot of TIE fighters throughout the years, had a very novice record when it came to the pro ranks. They still were recognized as being a genuine badass dude who was you know plowing plow through the competition.
0: Yeah, they waste like no no time. They're not trying to build the record or anything. They're just going right in.
1: Yeah, straight up. It's, you know, five, six pro fights. Okay, put me in with a little rule type of fight. And they usually win too, especially in the lower divisions. But yeah. Um but you know, um uh, Mambe put on a master class performance by all accounts, especially by the ringside accounts. Um, I'm I'm assuming Joy Kwazumi was there, others, and they all said that Mambe probably won going away. By the brief, brief clip that you see online that I finally sent you and a lot of people were very excited to see, you can see that, Ma, you know, Max Surin, like you said, was very aggressive going through it, trying to, you know, throw a swing for the hills, but Mambi was composed, countering, and generally getting the better of it. And Max Cern won a very controversial decision, but understandable considering where the fight was um, held. So, a guy like Mame, Mambi, even though he loses that decision, it's controversial, um, he probably would benefit more, obviously benefit more today in the type of era where social media was around so he can get like more clamoring for an immediate rematch or whatever. He had to struggle a little bit. You know what I mean? He wasn't going to get a title shot that quickly. So a couple of years passed, he has to, you know, plow through and do what he has to do. And after beating guys like Norman Storm and Norman Goins or Marlon Thomas, he finally gets another title shot against um, Max Soren's successor, Sang Hyung Kim. Which was, And then, again, he has to travel all the way to Korea for that fight. And by this point now, Mambi had signed with Don King, who Don is just monopolizing. You know what I mean? Don just kind of picks up everything, even if he feels like you're not going to be a champion or whatever. He feels you're going to be useful enough for a few fights that he can like put you in with somebody to make some money off of. He'll do it. And Mambi, I feel like he kind of did it as a commodity for that. So Mambi gets shipped off to South Korea and an extremely close fight, which again, we talked about his footage being non-existent, only the last round of this fight exists, and it's, the last round is when Mambi scores, you know, um, second to last round, excuse me, where he scores a beautiful knockout of Kim to become champion, unlikely at that point, you know, and Manby at that point now, now he's champion, he's one of those guys that like, okay, you know he's a very experienced fighter, he looks good, he can box well and everything, but like, He's just kind of on the back burner. He's not that popular enough that you're going to really put him on television and really try to, like, you know, put him in a marquee fight, even though you feel like he deserves it. And so he fights Esteban de Jesus. Esteban de Jesus is Roberto Duran's first, uh, you know, gave Roberto Duran his first defeat, former lightweight champion, a guy that, you know, had a memorable name throughout the 70s, but by 1980 is completely washed, mostly for outside-of-the-ring issues. Manby beats him. Then he ends up fighting Termite Watkins on the undercard of Ali, uh, on the very, very beginning of the undercard of Ali Holmes and gets shipped off to various countries now, you know what I mean? Like, gets to fight Thomas Americo in Indonesia, gets sucked off to Nigeria to, to fight, I can't even pronounce his name, Obstis. Um
0: Damn. A few of our
1: friends are going to kill me for not even knowing how to say this, but you can do it better than I can I'll buddy.
0: take a stab. Obesis and Wongpa.
1: Yes. There you go. Perfect. Before he gets a job in a very close fight against Leroy Haley. And no one really cared at that point when he lost to Haley. You know what I mean? Because at that point, um, I would consider that Manby was on par with somebody like, um, how would you say it? You know how Don King would would pick and choose his his heavyweight champions, especially at the WBA and his place and whatever. I don't really care. Like, he promoted Haley. He was promoting uh, Manby. If he loses, so what? You know what I mean? Yeah,
0: exactly. He didn't necessarily feel like Manbe was like a star that he needed to hold on to. If he lost, whatever. If he didn't, okay, fine. He'll stuff him deep on undercards like he kept doing. But Mm -hmm. like, uh, if you look at Manbe's career, and he's coming up, especially before he's getting big shots, and before he's getting a title shot, he's fighting at the Felt Forum a lot. Of course, Eris, who holds the record for appearances at the Felt Forum, Buddy McGirt, but, I but uh, I think that Mambe is like not too far behind him. And so Mambe was was, uh, he was making a lot of appearances, but then he wins the title and all of a sudden he's just fighting wherever dude, you know, he's just going around Detroit, Nigeria, wherever. And I think that that says a lot, unfortunately about his popularity, that there really wasn't much or, or otherwise they would have been finding him venues to really, you know, be a star or really be headlined, showcased, et cetera. That was not the case. And so that that on his part was also bad luck too. you know, not a not an exciting style, not an exciting fighter, not an exciting personality, a very interesting backstory, but just not one that was ever really told. So uh, it was unfortunate. That was kind of what he wound up going through. And after he loses that title, he wound up rematching Haley. Um, And I mean, you know, again, just bad luck with these fights, really close fights that he's losing decisions in.
1: Yeah, he loses an extremely close fight in a rematch to Haley. And then from there, like, he just becomes, you know, one of those guys that throughout the years, his contendership went down yeah. each year a little bit. But, like, he would always give a really good account of himself, but he quickly, after he lost the belt and then lost He'd give you points, rounds.
0: He'd definitely oh, give you rounds.
1: Well, I mean, he has one of the greatest chins in boxing history. I think he was only stopped one time, and he was rarely, um, very rarely ever really dropped or anything like that. He just knew how to box. He knew how to survive. He was a genius in the ring. Um, Larry Holmes was one of his best friends. And Larry employed him as his main trainer, I believe it was, if not his co-trainer, when he challenged Oliver McCall for his last heavyweight title fight. So, you know, that's how much Manby, you know, is held in regard and that type of thing. Like, Manby was one of those guys, again, like he wasn't exciting. We talked about it with Jack Johnson. It doesn't have to be exciting. He knew how to survive. He knew how to box. He just knew what he was doing in the ring. And guys like that, especially when they don't have the best records, but they just know how to give you rounds, and you are got to learn something from them, even if they're completely washed. A more recent example would be like DeMarcus Chop Chop Cor- Corley, right? You yep. know, a champion that has had a long-ass career, has a record similar to Mandy's, and – I mean, he's been stopped by many more times than Mambi has, but like a guy that just you know you know you're gonna you are gonna get rounds with an experience and just move around and figure things out with. And Mambi was that guy. Like, think about it. Soon after that, Ronnie Shields, who's known has been known as one of the top trainers for decades now, but if you didn't realize, it was a top contender in the junior welterweight division in the uh, early to mid '80s, um, loses you know a decision to him um billy costello gets another title shot to him buddy McGurr, who you just mentioned and, and so who's who like he's still able to pull upsets here and there for instance um glenwood brown who was 18 and 0 and a rising star on the new york scene and blasting everyone through when he fought manby in 1988 um manby put on one of his best performances of his career apparently.
0: like probably his last you know nice. real good performance yeah
1: absolutely And again, that was one of those fights that was super coveted for a number of years. Lee Groves told me that was one of his uh, top five, top ten must gets that he couldn't find anything of, and I finally was able to secure it for him. I made a deal with a guy on Twitter whose name shall not be mentioned, and um, he uh, got a copy for Lee. But it was cool; like Lee was able to see that fight, and Lee was confirmed that it was as like you know amazing as people made it out to be about Mammy's performance. So I was cool that he was able to see it. But yeah, Mammy just became one of those really serviceable guys that throughout the years, he'd lose more than he'd win. And, but he always still just kind of went the distance and fought a lot of who's who, you know what I mean? Like when a guy needed some wins on his record or wanted to have a big win, he fought him. A guy like Maurice Blocker who went on to become G- welterweight champion. And he would still, again, even in the, in the early nineties, still be able to pull out a win. For instance, um, remember Larry Barnes, the guy that fought Felix Trinidad for the welterweight, uh, welterweight crown in the mid-90s. And if you know him and if you've seen a few of his fights, he was probably most known for wearing literally a hockey gold mask on his face. <laughs> um, as like a, uh, you know, to bring the swelling down as opposed to using the hand swell. Anyways, that was Manny's last big like upset win. And then he just became like, you know, a serviceable journeyman from there. But he kept on fighting. And you're yeah. like, yo, this guy's fighting from 1969. He's never retired. Here he is in the 90s, even in the mid to late 90s, and he's still fighting. He suffered a gunshot wound one time when defending his son in an altercation. He went through all kinds of stuff. Like Manby was still going. And the most memorable thing, I think, one of his more memorable moments was around what was it when he tried to make when he made that other comeback. He had one more fight in like 2008, and this was like the early days of Twitter the early days of, you know, other social yeah. media, right, and YouTube, all that stuff, and you see him there, and he's training, and he's talking, and blah, 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 he's hitting the heavy bag and all that, <laughs> and whatever, you know, <laughs> the, the reporter that's doing the, that's doing the report on, you know, the reporter that's doing the story on him, she goes, oh, not only does Mammy think he can make a comeback, he thinks he can fight Ricky Hatton, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure, I'm not sure if Mammy even knew who Ricky Hatton was at that point, right, but, Man, he even goes out there and he says, and he was like, listen, man, of all those titles out there, which was like a million of them, he was like, all those titles out in that division, one of them belongs to me. And he was like 63.
0: (laughs) Dude served in Vietnam. Yes. Before his career began. And then his last fight was while George W. Bush was (laughs)
1: president. (laughs) god bless mandy man man. i that's one guy i regret never meeting i always wished i could have met him because i had so many questions for him
0: yeah dude look dude look like
1: dude look like fascinating
0: he looked like the killer from that movie ghost
1: yeah 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 yeah. (laughs) well i really found to be a fascinating individual man i just wish i could have met him
0: No, for sure. And definitely unsung, too, uh, compared to what he should be. Not the greatest career on the face of the planet. We're not saying he's, like, top 10 pound for pound. But a guy that gets forgotten, especially considering how long he fought, even his, like, you know, the the, the normal portion of his career, he lasted a long time.
1: Give him his flowers, man. Definitely.
0: He was another guy who's in the five-decade club, dude. 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s. Yeah, totally. Fucking wild shit so here's a here's another uh fighter who you know i mean he fought so many times we're not going over his career we can't go over 250 something fights dude it's gonna take too long but kid azteca luis paramo still- definitely yeah. one of the other fighters in the five decade club here if we're naming it that it's if we're, you know, it's kind of strict rules. I guess we're just talking about fighters who fought in five separate decades. There are other fighters who technically fought longer. It was just that how they timed out that they're, you know, they're when their debut timed out or whatever is when it, why that's it why I up.
1: said this is like has the potential to be a two parter for sure because, you know, we got a lot of other guys to cover that it may have been spaced a little bit more, but they definitely deserve to be mentioned. Uh,
0: yep. No question. And Kid Azteca is one of those fighters who's looked up to as, uh, you know, a lot of people might not even realize this, but it wasn't until the early 1930s uh, that, you know, the that uh, a Mexican fighter came up and became world champion because it seemed like it would be much much earlier or something like that but it, was, it there were definitely mexican fighters who were popular and fighters of mexican heritage who had become superstars and stuff like that but none who had become world champion but Kid Azteca was one of the fighters from around that time in the in especially in the 30s and 40s who had kind of risen to prominence and gotten really popular uh even you know as a fighter who was just a contender So he was a guy who uh, also came from a really famous neighborhood in Mexico city called Tepito, where if you look at the kind of, if somebody I've never done it, but if you had made a list of Mexican world champions and some of the greatest Mexican fighters, for whatever reason, they come from this particular neighborhood in Mexico city, which is pretty interesting. A number of fighters have. So uh kid Azteca from 1929 to 1961 Jesus Christ dude that's that's crazy
1: some people don't even live that long I hate to say something like that but that's just like that's an incredible career
0: that's nuts dude you
1: know what you like the amount of time that covers the amount of history that that covers the shit that he's seen from like All right. He started his career before Joe Lewis. He started his career before Joe Lewis. You know, even started his career, right? And then, like Dempsey was just almost finished from a year or two before that. And then he finishes it while, uh, right? You know, Ali was starting to be active. Like. Think about that's,
0: the time. That's period. a lot of shit that happened in between then. You know, that's a lot of shit and a lot of like technological advancement, a lot of changes in boxing and where I mean, it was going.
1: many generations you're seeing going through sugary Robinson's career is winding down by the time he finally finishes his career.
0: Well, and, and I, and this is also something that I that you and I have talked about too. Like, like I said, we're not going to be going over all of his, all of his career here. Cause it's too much. It's, it would take too long, but you know, uh, Excuse me, there he also belongs if you look on box rec on the there's a, an entire category fighters with more more than two hundred fights. It's not as big a list as you would think when you're talking about like upper level fighters. There's a lot of fighters, but not as many upper level fighters as you would think. But um one of the things that fighters who have fought that many times, you know, you talk about Harry Greb and You know, even Ray Robinson, as many times as he fought and stuff like that, Ray Robinson, as big a superstar as he was, a lot of these fighters were not fighting that many times just because they felt like it. They weren't fighting 250 times because they just wanted to fight 250 times. The vast majority of them weren't. There were some fucking sickos out there. Don't get me wrong. But I mean, you know, uh, these guys were fighting because they were getting paid like, you know. 50 bucks, 100 bucks, 150 bucks for fighting shit like that. They're fighting that often because they had to because they were trying to make ends meet and needed money. 1929 was when the stock market crashed and that's when he turned professional, which meant that he would have had to fucking fight, you know, shit was been shit would have been live and in uh Mexico around this time there's also a lot of shit going on. So, yeah, dude, wild to have his career going through as much as it did.
1: Oh nah, man. It's his career just like spans the think that he was still active in the early 60s. And this was the guy that was knocking out Fritzy zivic in the 40s is kind of just slight like, mind blowing to me when you look when you go over his career. Like you said, like you can't you can't um you can't downgrade something like that. You know what I mean? The fact that he was still active and like he lived to be close to 90 years old. And there is photos of him I've seen as a kid in various like ring magazines and stuff like that because he was an active guy even in his age like I think because he was I, he was inducted into the World Boxing Hall of Fame right?
0: I think so yeah
1: he did make appearances he was like kind of active making appearances around like various you know fights fight cards and functions and stuff like that and there's photos of him signing autographs and yeah, like, he oh,
0: looked God. great too
1: yes that's what I'm saying like he looked great and that's wild for a guy that had such a long career like that and other fighters didn't even have a career quite not even twice as long even close to as long as something like that and you know they had various issues retiring and going through this and that like some people man you know they're just built different him and jake lamotta they come from like a different cloth you know where shit just didn't affect them
0: got wins over seferino garcia fought you know young peter jackson defeated young peter jackson coco kid no, it, it's not like uh, Rodolfo, Baby, Casanova. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I was gonna say Coco Kid as well. Absolutely.
0: There, and I mean, he kind of. I'm not gonna say, like I said, he didn't have the greatest, uh, of greatest opponent level and whatnot. And there, if you look, look through his career, there's a lot of bums, dude. <laughs> I have mentioned this the other day when we were talking about fighters who had the most knockouts and shit like that. Every single one of those fighters <laughs> knocked out a lot of bums. Thing was knocking out knocking out a lot of bums also was not easy. So yeah, even so 250 fights, dude, going through 250 fights and then coming out on the other side, being okay, bless the guy.
1: Oh, no, nah, no, nah, man. That's an incredible pull in. He's just one of those guys that doesn't get talked about enough today because he's completely forgotten. Especially when you bring up like, you know, the best Mexican fighters in history and things like that. Like, he doesn't need to be near the top. Obviously, I understand that there's a lot of guys, you know, with credentials of like Olivares and Salvador Sanchez, Chavez, you know, the list goes on and on. But if you don't mention a guy like uh, Kid Azteca and you mention, like, you know, how long that the career they had, which overblows everybody's, then you're clearly not doing your homework on that. Like, he's, you know, give him his flowers as well. Like, this is one of those guys. That's an incredible career for as long as it lasted, like, you know, spanning as many generations and decades and presidents and heavyweight champions and this and that, and the way the evolution of boxing was going to you know, sure. Like from 1920, to 1961, it wasn't that much of a gap. Like guys, you know, from those eras and in, in what the sixties were going through, it was, you know, a little bit, but at the same point, like, you know, the basis of what was going on was still kind of there, but he, think about this. He came from one of those eras that, he was still active in, when he when he was still active in the late 50s up until 1961. He could have been one of those dudes from the Crumb Dungeon era, as we all are. No, my era would have kicked your ass and stuff like that. Saffronio Garcia would have smashed, you know, uh, Emil Griffith. Or even though Griffith wasn't champion, you know, 61. I'm just giving examples of things like that, you know what I mean? Or so-and-so would have beat the shit out of that. Frenchy Zemeck would have, I, you know, poked the eyes out of... Uh, who was the who was the multiweight champion of the fifties, with the late fifties? Don Jordan?
0: Yeah, I guess it would have been around the yeah, out Don Jordan or so.
1: I mean Princey Zivic definitely would have beat the shit out of Don Jordan, so whatever.
0: But I
1: <laughs> mean think about yeah, that. Like, let's just and then hundred and ninety two wins, forty seven losses, uh eleven draws, and probably a bunch of other undocumented fights that I'm sure he would attest to. I mean
0: nah. is pretty wild.
1: Yeah. Definitely. He was one of the first. He was one of the guys I was thinking about too to bring up, and another person that's just like if you don't know a lot about him, just look him up because it's a fascinating story.
0: Let's see. Do we want to do one more before we?
1: Yeah, 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 absolutely. And the last one I was going to bring up was uh, another dude on my sheet, and like I said, they'll, they we have to do another one because there's a lot of guys. That I think
0: we are. Yeah, on. I think we are going to have to do a part two. Yeah.
1: Uh, Archie Moore.
0: That's a good call, dude. That's a very good call, especially with, with how long, you know, it took for him just to get a title shot.
1: Absolutely. You know, and the fact that most guys would have been long retired for years at that matter, by the time he finally got his title shot. And then for how long he lasted, it rained. And then even after, even after uh, his career ended and what he did for a guy like George Foreman, we kind of passing on that magic juice of, you know, this is where you're going to make yourself longevity. Archie Moore has
0: to be mentioned. For a long time too it was widely believed considered you know Archie Moore was the all-time knockout king I, but the invention of the fucking internet shit changes bro <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Motherfuckers start researching, looking up shit, learning things. What the fuck? And now uh, I'm sorry to tell people that some dude named Billy Bird that, you know, not very many, especially Americans, really know about holds the all-time knockout record. Get mad about it. I don't know what you want me to do. All I can say is that Archie Moore probably has some fights that weren't documented too. So if you want to like notch a couple onto him, go ahead. I don't care. That being said, still dude more than 130 knockouts that's pretty fucking amazing (laughs) you knocking 130 people out that's pretty fucking wild you know
1: i mean for the fact that most fighters today don't um even like approach close to 60 fights for that matter before their career ends the fact that Moore scored 130 knockouts on his own is pretty fucking wild (laughs)
0: Yeah, dude. And, and it you know, obviously, like I was just saying, there's some bums on there, dude. There's a lot of bums on there. There's no one.
1: As, 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 you know, part the course for anyone from that era are different eras, you know what I mean? And when you see a record that's padded with 160-something wins or this many or whatever, stuff like that, there's going to be a lot of guys that you're just going to look at their record and say, what the fuck? And everybody yeah. on Twitter to like, oh, 100 bums, 100 cab drivers. Like they used to say, like they said about Chavez when I posted that clip of him where it says seventy-five and zero. Yeah, sixty cab drivers. No, no, no. There's no sixty cab drivers on his record. All right. Sure, is it padded with a lot of schlebs early on? Of course. Fine. That was just how it was when he was coming up. A guy like Piano Man Jones does that sound like a world beater? Because that's who more knocked down in his first world in his first uh, in his first pro fight. But. No, Mora came through one of the toughest eras you can imagine. They had to go tooth and nail with Black Murderers Road. Do you think that was easy? <laughs> that would ruin most careers, and none of those guys ever became champions except for Mora out of that bunch, so...
0: And it, and you know it's it's fucking wild too because a lot of the time during those arguments someone would be like, well look at Ray Robinson. It's like no, don't look at the fucking worst possible example you can bring up with one of the most accomplished fighters of all time as holding that up as the, if that's the low bar. Stop, just fucking stop it. You know it's it's ridiculous. Of course Ray Robinson fought like a who's who and probably the biggest list of who's who in terms of wins and losses. We get it, but nonetheless, dude, Archie Moore fought a lot of fucking well-known fighters. He's got some losses on there too, of course, but that's what happens when you know he he started out as a middleweight. He's only about five foot ten, five eleven. He wasn't a big even at middleweight. wasn't a very big middleweight. Uh, and on top of that, part of uh, the he had a a condition where he wound up having to have surgery later on, and people. Uh, speculated that his condition, where he wound up having to have part of his intestine removed, wound up adversely affecting him and that making him gain weight, etc. Doesn't even matter. Point being, like you said early on in his career, he was considered part of that kind of black murderers row group of uh, fighters who were basically shut out and not—they were not really going to be getting uh, title shots, especially at middleweight. Um, you know, during the 1940s, and Archie Moore had to fight his way through this group. You know, it's sometimes lost.
1: Oh, yeah, and had to play some badass white dudes, too. For instance, you know, in his first major step up, he fights Teddy Yaros, who was middleweight champion of the 30s and a beautiful boxer himself, a guy that doesn't get talked about more than uh, enough today. Yaros was a bad, bad man. And Yaros, you know, understandably, outboxed more pretty comprehensively in that fight. Morris said he learned a lot in it. And Yaros, which is really hysterical to think um, in retrospect, said after the fight said something to the effect of you know archie's a good young lad he'll learn a lot something like that like he'll go far which is funny because more you know consider how long his career went and old archie and everything like that the fact that a guy like Yaros beat him around and was like yeah yeah he's a young kid he'll get it," it is kind of funny but that's where yeah, you're.
0: yaroses dude they were pretty popular for a minute there though
1: oh yeah yeah for sure and then you had – and then, like, not only was he fighting, like we said, Black Murderer's Row, he had to fight other really tough guys like the Hogue Twins, Shorty Hogue and Big Boy Hogue, um, badass fighters in their own, right, who did not draw the color line and fought everybody and every and anyone around that time, both of them really skilled, and I think um, more lost to both of them, you know? And then from there, he's fighting guys like Jack Chase, who was from the, the Murderer's Row, Jimmy Bivens. Um, and you know Holman Williams, Coco Kid, Lloyd Marshall, losing to Charlie Burley, and he, he's like trading wins and losses with these guys, as well as fighting other dudes like Oakland Billy Smith, who wasn't really a part of that group, kind of on the outside because he wasn't, you know, as skillful as the rest of them, but still a badass in his own right. Who um, what did he knock out Harold Johnson at one time?
0: Oakland I think Billy so, Smith.
1: yeah. Yeah, just a, a really tough, dangerous guy in his own right. And Mora has to fight these guys multiple times. All right. It, this is where his career is heading. So where all these guys were career is heading. They're too dangerous to really be put against anybody of the absolute elite until they get too old and then they get kind of expedited out there. But until then, it's almost like a battle oil of them fighting each other over and over.
0: Yeah, and and I mean, being in a position where you're kind of just having to fight through all of these really great fighters, too turns you into a really good fighter yeah. and eventually moving up to when I, I don't know if it was just an issue of being clear that he was never going to get a shot at middleweight or he just couldn't really make middleweight anymore. Decided to move up to light heavyweight either way. Um, you know, he, he at least had the stature and obviously the punch to be able to take, uh, take a stab at light heavyweight. But the thing was, dude, the guy, it, it, his career was so long. And it went through like so many different kind of stages that I almost get it like the timeline messed up because it's it's weird to think that like it took so long for him to get a shot at the light heavyweight championship. And then he gets a shot at Rocky Marciano, but then he goes back because it's like he takes a whooping against Rocky Marciano. I mean, you know, understandably so, but he takes a whooping, but then just goes back. And is still whooping acid light heavyweight. Like it's just, it just that that's so weird to me.
1: And I and I I have to I have to go back and like mention this man. Like even though Mora was considered maybe the uncommon light heavyweight champion, he wasn't the best in that division because Ezra Charles was still there. And Ezra Charles yeah. conveniently made sure that more realized
0: that as it was his daddy <laughs> all the he, time he, he absolutely spanked the shit out of him unfortunately i mean <laughs> no no shame because ezra charles might be the greatest light heavyweight of all time despite never a- actually holding the championship yeah. just looking at his the run that he went on at light heavyweight it's kind of absurd but part of that run was just picking archie Moore up and chucking him down a small hill Yes. he was just like, "Sorry, tonight. buddy, not tonight."
1: There's like, there's like, still photos of Moore just looking like on his knees, and while Charles is just ripping at him, you see more. Ah, you know, it's it's bad. It, it's really really bad. Charles was a different type of animal. So by the time he finally moved up, that's when Moore was like, "Okay, I think I have a clear now. Path. I could get something done. <laughs> I could get something done because like the fucking boogeyman's away from me now. <laughs> Poor
0: guy." Yeah, it the the really, whole really timeline man. is weird to me.
1: Absolutely. But by the time he finally gets a shot against Joey Maxim, who became champion um, after, like, think about the guys that were avoiding um, Archie Moore up at that point, right? You had Gus Lesnovich. Gus Lesnovich was not a bad champion, a tough fighter, but clearly levels below probably a guy like Moore. And if Moore had a chance against me, definitely would have whooped him. Um, Freddie Miller. Freddie Miller is a second. Uh, not Miller. Um, Freddie Mills, excuse me um same thing uh tough as nails guy that probably um would have put up a good fight against more but definitely would have got bludgeoned and then joey maxim and joey maxim was finally the one that was able to get uh that game more a title fight but i think it was the reason why Moore finally got it late in his career the way he did is because he had to sign with jack kearns wasn't it because kearns was already maxim's manager
0: I th- yeah there was something he had to do uh was it kearns he had, to, know, he had to sign something to, yeah, to kind of, like, sell out a little bit to get the shot.
1: Yeah, for sure. After however many years. That on his
0: <laughs> That's fucking wild, dude.
1: Absolutely. definitely wasn't getting on his merits, so I feel like it was something to do with Kearns. That Kearns, you know, made some... Because, obviously, a guy like Jack Kearns, you know, the little scoundrel that everyone tries to make it out to be the lovely guy. that Oh, you know, it's just a lovable scoundrel that people have no it was. He was a piece of shit.
0: Yeah, he's pretty and dirty.
1: Very, very dirty. That's being nice about it. But he definitely did what he had to do. I'm sure to make a deal that he was getting some kind of incentive if Moore was going to get shot. Well, God, a
0: shot. Fool got fool basically got chased out of court by Jack Dempsey, like I think it was twice, and and still wound up peddling the story about the the hand wraps and shit. Like, yeah, he wasn't a good dude. He wasn't well, a very good dude. Well, and
1: he said, you know, he was able finally in 1952 to become champion.
0: Well, shit. I mean, 1952, and what did he start in 19? Yeah, 1935 to 1952. So damn near, almost 20 years to become world champion, dude. That's that's a long ass time. I think it's uh, what's his name? Uh, Chalky Wright was like 13 years and change, which in and of itself is pretty wild. But like, yeah, goddamn, 17 years. Jesus.
1: I mean. And that's like a long, like that's like two careers that he had at that point. Considering the competition that he fought, everyone he had to go through over and over. And Maxim was no slouch. Give him credit for that. Like you know, Maxim kind of gets like forgotten over the years, or if not forgotten. He's kind of like looked upon like you know a little bit more downward because oh, he's the guy that outlasted Sugar Ray Robinson because Robinson got too tired, mm-hmm. or he's this, he's that mm-hmm. no. Maxim, right? Maxim was a badass man. You got to give him the, his just due. He right? fought in you know that what?
0: heat too, man.
1: He absolutely did. But he was an iron chin dude. The only time he was ever stopped, I believe, was against um, Curtis Shepard, Hashman Shepherd. And other than that, sure, he was dropped many times as a Charles bouncing like a basketball whenever he moved up to heavyweight to fight him. Moore definitely dropped him a few times. Other fighters walked him around. But he was a classic boxer, boxer with an iron chin and was one of the toughest guys of his era, and definitely deserved to be in the Hall of Fame. So give him credit where credit is due. If it wasn't Archie Moore, Maxim probably would have beat a guy who was the same age rather comprehensive, uh, comprehensively. So,
0: Yeah, for sure. A guy who gets overlooked, uh, and it's kind of unfortunate because he was definitely a very good fighter and a very good light heavyweight too, yeah. but just you know, was not – it was Archie Moore. <laughs> Archie Moore, like we've talked about him on other shows. Yeah, but... Archie was
1: mad at that point too, bro. You know what I mean? He yeah, was bitter. Yeah. It took so long for him to become champion. All right, enough is enough.
0: And He had the power. He had the skills. We've talked about his skills on numerous occasions because he was a highly skilled guy. It wasn't just, yeah, 130 knockouts, but he yeah. wasn't the kind of puncher where he was just like sleeping everybody. He was tricking him into the knockout. He was walking you into the knockout. You know, he was, that's the problem is that he was a very, very tricky fighter. And he was a guy that was really, really difficult to deal with. And he remained fairly difficult to deal with for the most part. It was just that, you know, later on in his career, the guys that he were fighting were just better. Um, you know, and, and also the opportunities that he got were just, I think came at the wrong time. And again, sure. it, toward the end of his career, dude, like he had been fighting a long ass time. Dude,
1: he was already at that. Like you said, he had the scars on his stomach. He was graying at the sides. He was old. You know, like, he was an older fighter at that point. And so when he's defending now in the mid-50s as champion against Harold Johnson, long time, you know, he already traded wins and losses back and forth with a guy like that. That was the one time you said that you said Moore was always relaxing the ring and kind of, you know, putting people to the traps. That was the one title fight where he had to, like, actually jump out and do something wild because he was losing. And Johnson, who had been with him and knew how to box him and knew what he was doing with a guy like Moore. And was a
0: very good fighter.
1: Oh, my God, and a very good boxer, too. And if Moore was going to try to be boring with you, Johnson knew how to bring it even more boring. Like, he wasn't a Mr. Excitement. You know what I mean? And Moore was struggling. he's was behind on points. And then finally, around, like, round 14, I was it, around 14? It was. Round 14, he jumps in, like, with, like, a surprise attack that Johnson was not expecting and kind of, you know, took him out. But that's the type of shit he had to do. Um, when he fought Bobo Olson and defended his belt against him, for Bobo, you know, feeling himself a little bit. I think he beat Maxim and before this fight, and like you know was dominant middleweight champion He was feeling himself like you know, okay, to the point where I think the Molson was actually considering the challenge Marciano for the title had he beat Archie Moore <laughs> <laughs>
0: I Bobo, see no. help, right yeah yeah, Bobo don't do it. I mean, you it's knocked the bald right off your head, bro.
1: Well, that's what Archie Moore did because you know, more Bobo didn't do bad for the first round and a half until Moore started, you know, gauging his distance and getting a, getting a beat on him. And <laughs> once he did,
0: <laughs> I, I got nothing against Bobos, and he's probably a super nice dude. I've heard good stories about him. But it was, at, yeah. like, damn near every big fight he had, almost every big fight he had, it would be like he'd be doing good, he'd be doing good. They'd just get hit and be like, ah, ah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> like every big fight, dude, poor guy.
1: There's a lot of, I hate to say it, but there are a lot of photos of him just laid out, just unconscious after whether it be Robinson, whether it be Archie Moore, whether it be, I think Jose Torres did the trick against them. Um, Pat McMurdy, we talked about on a past show, knocked him out late in his Yeah. You know. Or Bobo. L- l- you know what? It's lucky for him that Archie Moore weighing 175 or probably a lot lighter for that matter, knocking him out than someone like Marciano just clubbing him in the head.
0: <laughs> That's probably true, yeah. Oh
1: man. Is that just oh my god, I can't even imagine what caveman club and marciano would have done to him
0: and well and that's another thing that messes me up about the timeline is how late in his career the Durrell fight came
1: yes yeah
0: like because they- to me i'm like oh that's <laughs> like 50s that's early in his career Nah, dude that's like toward the end
1: yeah oh yeah absolutely it came like that it come it came after marciano right
0: yeah that's what i'm saying the first one was 1958 next one was 1959 I mean, he had already gotten his ass whooped by Marciano, poor guy. Good gravy, dude.
1: Yeah, yeah, you see it right now, man. That first fight, too, is one of the all-time great fights. Moore gets dropped, like, three times in the first. He gets up, he gets dropped again. Like, he's beat around that fight. And if this didn't happen in the late 50s, say it happened in, fuck, 2098, 2008, let alone today's age, um, fight definitely would have been stopped immediately. Yep. Get not the old
0: shot. British stoppage.
1: Oh, yeah, 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 for sure. Especially at a guy like Mora's age just getting dropped over and over like that. No one would let that go on because they're going to think it's like elder abuse. Yeah, And Mora came on score one won the great, you know, comeback knockouts in history. That was a fight that was actually featured on Classic Sports. In between um, Liston, Eddie Machen, Ali, not Ali, uh, Marciano, Joe Lewis, and... I don't know. Mike whatever.
0: Tyson Jaco or some shit. Yeah, yeah. Some shit like that. Yeah, <laughs> some like, fucking uh, random yeah. shit. Some yeah. random ass or Mike Tyson, Mike Jameson, or something like that. And some but weird... once in a
1: while they would show, you know, more Derelli. That's true.
0: Yeah, that's true. Fighting fishermen. That's yeah, that's crazy just how late in his career. You know, by the time, you know, he's winding down Willie Pastrano, the fact that he even gets a draw at Willie Pastrano, but you know, works his way to Muhammad Ali <laughs> shot at Muhammad Ali pre-heavyweight championship because of the whole angle of where Archie Moore was his trainer but then Muhammad Ali's now mad at him because he doubted him and or you know some host of reasons so Muhammad Ali's vowing to get more in four and that's what he does
1: and if you want I remember seeing that clip of that fight and I was like who is this old man in the ring because he looks so ponderous and he's really old and Ali was, like, slapping him around. If you see more, he's just kind of, like, shuffling and falling to the ring. Like, he just looks like he's bewildered and old and shouldn't be around. He should be in an old folks home or something. Yeah, now, Ali's
0: not even, like, fully taking it. Like, he's not, like, you know, really, he's like,
1: he's just kind of, like, not even yeah. trying. I'm just, like, what is this? Was this a guy that just got mad at Ali and was, like, I'm going to teach you a lesson as an old man and just got slapped down for it? Because that's and he's
0: probably I, like secretly getting him a payday and just acting like he was mad at him. And, and so,
1: as a young kid, because that was the first my first um exposure to Moore was the uh was this Ali video. So, I'm like, I had no idea just seeing this old man. But then, when I actually read about him, saw his career, and saw other clips of him, I was just like, my god, I became not you know, fascinated again. Yeah, like, Moore was incredible. So, he ends his career against Mike DiViase and Staplefact. Fact. That's the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase's dad.
0: Hell yeah, we're bringing up wrestling trivia today.
1: Yeah, we are. A few, you know, I mean, when it when it needs to be put in there, it absolutely should be. And this Hell is definitely yeah. one. And it kind of brings back the fact that wrestlers would randomly take fights. But you just want to suspect Freddie Blassie against Two ton Tony Galento, Mike DiBiase against the Million uh, against Archie Moore. You know, I know you have other examples, but um, yeah, that was how oh, more Frank Gotch, ideas. dude. Frank Gotch, absolutely. And so, what's crazy though is that, like, okay, Mora retires finally in 1963. And, but he's not done with boxing. Like, he's still kind of active in the sport, still, you know, watching, observing, training some people until he latches on with a young phenom, aka freak, aka, you know, a person that no one is scary, bastard, scariest man on the planet the likes that the world had not seen since the days of fucking Jack Dempsey, let alone Joe Lewis. Not, excuse me, let alone Sonny Liston. That's George Foreman. And, again, like, imagine the combo you have. Forget Dick Sadler. Like, yeah, he was Foreman's main trainer, bro. think about the combo you have here. Archie Moore, 131 knockouts, one of the baddest men that ever walked the planet. Sandy Sadler. All right? A dude who is so just into violence and love, like loving and smiles that he would get on his face, the way he wouldn't, you know, put violence on his opponents, that the fact that you would think he might be kind of, you know, um, sociopath to a degree. those were his, those were his trainers.
0: (laughs) Might headbutt you, might knock you out, might knee you, might forearm you, whatever. And,
1: and, you know, find find it justifiable for what he did to you.
0: Dude, you know what's crazy okay. too, though. Both of
1: those two trainers.
0: <laughs> you know what's crazy too, though. Is speaking of which, I was watching. You know, it's somewhat related, the yeah. the knockout, uh, George Foreman's knockout of Jose Roman. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That shit was dirty as fuck, bro. Dude, he Absolutely. hit him really hard when he was down. <laughs> like, and referee was like not even close to like he was not even thinking about doing shit, dude. That guy got blasted. I mean. Like I said only semi-related but Archie Moore uh yeah did work with George Forman but also worked in gyms and worked with kids pretty much like like his entire life his entire adult life he was working with kids and also became a movie star he did he did oh yeah
1: he was in a few films like he was a big jazz fan so you see photos of him with like guys like lucky Thompson and other people and he was he in played
0: Huck Finn. played French horn
1: he did yeah and he uh and um he was in Huck fame, like you said you know' yep. playing in- so fast forward now, Foreman retires. And more, like you said, he's still working more with the youth and kind of doing things, but in terms of being on TV and being a president now, he's taking a step back for a while. Foreman comes back in the late eighties in the mid eighties now, nineteen eighty seven. Archie Moore comes back with him. And more, you know, as Foreman career, as Foreman's comeback starts, you know, building momentum and he's being featured more on TV and yada yada yada, blah blah, blah. So is Moore now, you know. Archie Moore is doing more interviews. Archie Moore, you know, is being featured now in, you know, Little Mini Docs and stuff like that. And it's so cool to see because, like, Archie Moore had that longest career, all right, that lasted as long as it did up until 1963 from the late 30s. And now he's got a George Foreman who's coming back and now having this late career resurgence. And it's like, what are you telling this man to have him have the same longevity that you did? You know what I mean? And you see Moore there, and he's so fascinating looking, right? He had that cap on with all the pins, you know, he's gray, but he can still in shape and he can still tell he's all he has all his wits about him. And um like one moment in like nineteen ninety, for instance, when Foreman's come really started to take wings. All right, he knocks out Jerry Cooney, and then he's featured on HBO for the first time against Adelson Rodriguez. And I you know, as, as bullshit as that card was, because Tyson knocked out Henry Tillman in one round and Foreman blasted out Rodriguez. I love I'm always gonna be a sucker for outdoor shows, outdoor HBO, like outdoor boxing matches in Vegas, especially when the sun is still setting a little bit. And the sun was still setting when Foreman knocked the shit out of Rodriguez. Yeah, they to
0: need me. to bring Caesars back, bro. The yeah, parking yeah. lot. Yeah,
1: parking lots. Yeah, there was something just cool about that whole series. And they zoom in before the fight on Archie Moore, who's just leaning in, you know, leaning on the ropes, just kind of taking in the scenes and God knows what's going through his brain, right? And um Larry Merchant is like, there's a great light heavyweight champion, Archie Moore, one of the greatest fighters of all time. And he was like, you know something, when I was the editor of whatever newspaper he was in L.A., that Merchant that he was doing, he said, Archie Moore used to send me all the time uh, five to ten page letters, (laughs) written letters to him, talking about different things he he wanted to discuss about. (laughs) Which I thought was pretty fucking cool that he said, you know. And... um. There was other accounts, too, from other writers, guys like Jeff Ryan, who you might remember from Old yep. Ring, from the Old Ring Magazine articles, and other writers who said that they would interview Moore during that time period. And Moore would be talking, yada, 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 doing whatever. And then at random parts, he would just jump out of his seat and flurry for about 15 to 20 seconds, just do a complete flurry, and just shadow box, and then just sit back down again, catch his breath, start talking again, jump up and start doing that. And then he would say, I can do that for about a round and a half, like, you know, something like, you know, or how many rounds he said he could do it for.
0: (laughs) I'm not trying to be one of those people who winds up in the paper, like, person knocked out by former chance, you know. No, I'm not. No, Mm -mm. I I know too bad and too, too well. And I've seen too many just absolute nerdy looking dudes just stand, you know, walk right up to him. wouldn't even think twice about saying shit. They'd knock you clean out, dude. Same thing. I know too well now. I'm not messing with no old Archie Moore's. No way. Fuck that.
1: And that and that's the crazy thing is that like Moore would um and if you watch, there's a there's a clip on YouTube where they're they're introducing the, the, the initial class of the Boxing Hall of Fame. And it's that like Cannesota High School or something. They're all in the box they're all in the ring. Um you have Napolis. you have Ike Williams, um Patterson uh bob foster you know the list goes on and on like a, a legends that were email griffith you know all the guys right that were in the ring that day for that and archie gets introduced and when he comes in the ring he waves and then he jumps and actually gets in his whole like crab defense stance that he did back in the day moves around a little bit jabs comes over throws a hook ducks ducks like that the crowd goes absolutely wild <laughs> And he looked smooth doing it. I wasn't like an old guy trying to build an emotion. Like, he looked like he was, you know, kind of like, remember we were just talking about Duran earlier in the show, moving around with Sergio Moro, just kind of moving? That's how Archie Moro looked, except he was even older. Like crazy. I pivoted. believe it. He completely pivoted beautifully off his, butt, his back foot, spun around, did some angles like that, threw a couple of jabs. I'm like, yo, guy was ageless. And I'm so, you know, I'm so disappointed. I, I want to say disappointed is not the right word, because... It, it was just circumstance. I'm just, I feel bad that I never had a chance to meet him because we really, um, I think Moore passed away in the late 90s or so, like, you know, yeah, or whatever, around, what is around there? And the first year I went to I the look, Hall of Fame.
0: I want to say 98?
1: Probably all right.
0: 98,
1: 99, around that time.
0: 98.
1: 98. And my first year at the Hall of Fame was 2000. Oh, Mora was very active going there every single year up until around his death, I believe. So it's like, you know, it came him, Willie Pep, and Eddie Fletcher, the three that I just came this close that I just missed out on. I got to meet a lot of incredible fighters that I'm blessed to have met over the years. A lot of them that have since passed away. Got a chance to interact with them, photos, everything you can imagine. But those are the guys I just missed. And I'm just like, <laughs> you know.
0: Bam. Well, I mean, Archie Moore, dude. It's a long life, a long career. He shook a lot of hands along the way, knocked out a lot of mouthy mofos along the way too. You know what I'm saying? And he did. (laughs) No, it's, it's, we've talked about a number of really good fighters on this show already. I think we are probably going to have to do a part two. Part two is probably going to have to be a little bit more of a deep dive, a little bit more of a, you know, there's going to be maybe a few names that are not quite as famous, but Hey, we mentioned some real famous names today. Some real good names.
1: Sure. Absolutely. Look forward to part
0: two. Yeah, I think part two is probably going to have to be necessary. But in the meanwhile, dude, I appreciate you, dude. Thanks so much for coming on, talking some history with me. It's always a really fun time, dude. Absolutely, man. It's been a blast as always. Everybody who listened in, thanks so much. And if you listen in on one of the podcast apps please continue to do so subscribe and leave a comment. And if you watched on YouTube, thanks so much for that too. subscribe, leave a comment. We'll try to reply as far as social media goes. The knuckles and gloves podcast is on both Facebook and Instagram. It's on Twitter for the time being as well, but also we are on Twitter. My buddy Eris is on there as punch zone. Eris on there as Patrick M Connor say hello. We'll try to say hello back and Eris, We'll talk soon, bro. Have a good one. Yeah everybody